Good evening. Welcome to the Adventurers Club of Los Angeles. It's Thursday at 745. We are here with Kevin Lee, member 1163. Welcome, Kevin. Great to be here. Thanks. So obviously we're still broadcasting. The club's still shut down. Um, I hope you're enjoying these stories um, via our YouTube channel. If you like our YouTube channel, please don't forget to subscribe. So um, we're here tonight to talk to Kevin Lee. Before we get started, can I say something? Yeah. I haven't been here for three or four months, and I'm very impressed with what you, Brian, uh, Alec, Andy, all of you guys have been doing in the club. Looks really fantastic. Well, thank you. We're trying yeah. to do something, you yeah. know, in this time that we're shut down, right? Yeah, and, I, you know, we keep saying Andy, but, you know, can we show the world who Andy is? Andy, would you mind running back here just for a second? Yeah, just, just, just take a neat, like... <laughs> This is, this, don't, don't trip over anything. Yeah, oh Andy and you have been doing a bang up job. Hey, Andy, you need a haircut, yeah? This is Andy on this channel. Yeah, yeah. So. And we do appreciate everything you do because, uh, you know, this is not a one man show, it's a uh, two man show. That's right. You guys are doing <laughs> and this a terrific is the guy job. Behind the scenes doing, doing all our stuff. So thank you very much, Andy. We appreciate all your work. And thank you, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, we're, well, we're, talking about haircutting, I, I was able to get a haircut just last week for, for yeah. the meeting tonight. Otherwise, I was going to come in looking like Samson. I was actually able to get a haircut yesterday, too, because <laughs> yeah, um, say, it just a... happens in my bathroom, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we're done. Yeah. So I do try to get a haircut every week just for the show. Uh, well, every month, but it was like yeah. one on three months. So I had some pretty long, had a long wig, let's put it that way. Yeah. Hey, it, 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 or the what do they call it? The COVID beard. Yeah, right, right. right. So, um, Kevin, everybody knows you because your badge is very colorful, and it's got this um, sea slug on it, known as a nudibranch. So, good uh, pronunciation. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna put a picture of a nudibranch up uh, right now, uh -oh. and we want you to identify it. Uh oh. Name that nudibranch. Oh my gosh. Well, if I were a guessing man, that is called a Placida Kevin Lee. A and Kevin Lee <laughs> Well, it's much to my pleasant surprise last year, uh, Angel Valdez, who's one of the foremost uh, uh, sea slug experts of the world, uh, I'd been helping him and his cadre, David Behrens and Terry Gosliner, uh, collect and photograph these nudibranchs around the world, seven continents. And uh, he surprised me by naming this particular sea slug after me. So I so shot you it have off the a species, yes, an animal species named after you. Yes, yes. So uh, you know, I don't have any other children that I know of. So this this is my baby, and uh, it was taken off the uh, coast of Kenya. And just so people know, um, the, the how big are these? Uh, well, the 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 largest one is right off our coast. Uh, it can be like almost three feet long. Uh, oh wow! Heterobranchs. But this one is maybe an inch, uh, three quarters of an inch. So like that big, right? Little, le much less, half so, that, half that. So all of this is like macro photography Correct. that you do. That's right. And it's gorgeous, you know, it's, it's well, a very unique. You. Well, um, you know, I, I wish I had taken a better shot actually, but I thought it was the same species that I've seen in, uh, in uh, Korea. So uh -huh. I just saw it and I just took like two shots of it just to document that I'd seen it not knowing later that scientists would figure out it's a brand new species. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So These things are they're fascinating. Um, do you, so you collect some of them too? Well, with proper pin permitting, um, yes, I've been on teams where we collect them and uh, we pickle them 
and uh, we send them off to you know research centers hmm. like Angel Valdez I mentioned and uh, and what have you Los Angeles uh, uh, County Museum of Natural History also not only nudibranchs but other invertebrates uh, we collect and we send to them and many of them end up being uh, new species that's crazy yeah and now what what uh, distinguishes a new species of any animal because I mean it, you know these are all uh, very colorful and stuff so how, first of all how many species of nudibranch do you think exist? Uh, there's probably 3,500 to 4,000 now that have been described. Uh, and what makes it a new species? The well, standard like because, can't breed with each other? Or? Uh, well in the animal world in general yes but you know you have wolves who can mate with dogs uh, you have uh, uh, horses with mules, things like this. So there are some interspecies breeding, but normally their progeny cannot reproduce. Yeah. So uh, in the field of nudibranchs, what's uh, turned the world around topsy-turvy is the advent of DNA analysis. Hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, up to now you, you had species named after, you know, a visual observation, uh, dissection, looking at the gut, the nudibranchs even have teeth called radula. Mm -hmm. And so you can count, you know, how many denticles are there. All these things, you know, you guessed and you were probably 90, 95% correct as to the species. But it turns out with DNA, you may not even be in the same genus. Huh. And so uh, with DNA analysis, it's the uh, taxonomy has changed a lot. And so with that also as a powerful tool, you, you can... Uh, determine what when you see a new species or find a new species yeah yeah well that's pretty cool yeah yeah um yeah. so tonight we're not here to talk about nudibranch though which is, is is something that you're very much into right we're here to talk about i i think i'm going to call it maybe your origin story or one of the big one adventures yeah one of one i mean you've been an adventurer all your life right correct probably started when you're five years old or so that's right yeah um but you told me that you were working a and this is like the classic, like how, how the adventure starts, right? Yes. You're working a corporate job in Seoul. Yeah, let and, me explain that. Yeah. You know, um, I had, you know, what most would consider a safe, secure, comfortable, financially rewarding job in Seoul, Korea, working with a uh, major corporation uh, now called Pacific, Amore Pacific. It's the largest cosmetics firm in Korea, and they're pretty much worldwide now, okay? Um, but, you know, I'm Korean-American with the emphasis on American. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, culturally, the way I think, uh, my values, you know, it, American. But right. I did want to go back to Korea because uh, I wanted to learn about my heritage. We all have a heritage in the U.S. Even, I suppose, the Native Americans here, you know, migrated from, from Asia. So right. I wanted to get in touch with my uh, heritage, so I went back to Korea. Uh, to learn the language, and I speak it fairly fluently with an American accent. Mm -hmm. But uh, I did spend some time there uh, learning about the culture, the history, etc. And uh, you know, I supported myself by working in a corporate position. But uh, eventually, I uh, uh, I came to the conclusion that I needed to get myself back to the U.S. where I felt more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so. Uh, uh, I decided to just uh, bail, you know, sell everything I had and yes. uh, re yeah, return to the U.S. But before coming, I would uh, take maybe two or three uh, month uh, excursion, you know, in, in Asia. And maybe. how long did you go for? 
Well, ended up being three years total. Yes. <laughs> this is how it goes, right? <laughs> yes, right? Like, you know, I really got to go out there. I got I to gotta see, see the world. I'm going to take a couple months off. And then you do it. That's right. And then yeah. three years later. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you bought, you bought a, a, a TRW plane ticket. Yes, uh, TWA, back, TWA, yeah, TWA. TWA uh, back then, uh, Transworld Airlines, they, uh, they had a special ticket that uh, would enable you to fly around the world and do it all within one year, you know, for a set price. And, the, and I thought the price was pretty good, so that's why I bought a business class ticket. And it was, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars back then. This is early 90s. And, uh, you know, I figured it was cheap enough just to use it, you know, in the two or three month uh, span that I had planned. And uh, so it allowed you to go one way around the world uh, within 12 months. And so that's how, you know, armed with that, I set out. So, like, as long as whatever your destination airport was still, you know, and, and progressing across the time zones or progressing right. in, the, in the right direction, you're good to go. Right. They so did. you could go up. And down and up, as long as you keep going west that's right yeah. or keep going east right but they set. did they did allow me to backtrack once from Cairo but to uh, to Nairobi uh, but it, essentially I went around the world uh, from east to west yeah Very so my cool. first stop was in uh, Thailand and uh, you know, I, I rode motorcycles back then I loved them the freedom you felt and all that I forgot uh, when I rented a, a motorcycle that they, they drive on the opposite side that we do Oh, uh, here in America and in Korea. So, you know, I, I got the bike, I filled it up, and I buzzed out of there and nearly became a hood ornament, you know, for a car. <laughs> yeah. First thing, I'm sure they see a lot of that, right? Here yeah. goes this guy on a motorcycle. He, yeah. he takes yeah. off. Oh, wrong side. So, uh, yeah, and, that, and uh, I, uh, one thing that I did in Pattaya was uh, bungee jumping. And uh, it was sort of, I wanted to overcome, you know, the fear of heights, acrophobia. Did it work? And uh, I'm not sure it did, but it was a thrilling adventure. And You at least proved that you can do yeah, it. Yeah, I loved it so much I did it twice. The first time, you know, it's, it's a, a huge uh, crane that, that uh, pulls you up and, in a cage. And I'm at the top looking down, and it's, it's on land, so they have a painted blue square know mimicking water and you know they open the, the gate to the cage and I'm hyperventilating you know and the, the guy next to me puts his hand on my shoulder and I said don't touch me don't touch me you know <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know then I you get the heebie-jeebies I mean one of the innate uh, fears that humans have even as babies you know they've conducted uh, uh, tests where the baby crawls on a mirror surface and comes to a you know seemingly a uh, drop off, yeah, and the baby will immediately stop. So you know that's a protective thing. That I we, know anecdotally, my baby, yeah, does it gets to the edge of the couch and he doesn't. He goes right off. He's gone off a couple <laughs> times. He's an adventure. <laughs> we catch him, right? <laughs> but we're not really. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> that's but, interesting, though. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah I'm, so, I'm terrified. I know people though. I have friends that will walk right, like if it was the Grand Canyon, literally, yeah. like a huge drop. They just walk right to the edge and then look over and they'd be like, okay. Yeah. And I understand that like, you know, the balance is there. You, yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. something in your mind that triggers that like, right, right. oh shit, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I could die. But I know some people can walk up. To yeah, the yeah. They're amazing. I don't have that yeah. uh, ability. But, you know, I'm looking down and uh, I really, my, my, uh, uh, my brain is saying, you know, 
yeah, it's everything will be okay. I checked out the bungee cord. You know, it's thousands of strands of uh, this rubber material. Mm -hmm. You've got aircraft quality uh, attachments on it, you know. So my mind's saying, yeah, you're safe, you know, do it. But your heart says, oh, what the hell are you doing here, you know. But you did it. And you did and, it. Well, and the reason I did was sort of, uh, I guess, a mixture of pride and shame because I looked down and there's a big crowd of people and I thought, Man, if I don't jump and I go down within the cage, you know, I never live this down. <laughs> so, you know, three, two, one, and I jumped off. And it, it, the thing, you drop down and it pulls you back, almost back to the cage. So you have several oscillations, you know. It uh -huh. was really thrilling. So, again, I, it was so thrilling that I did it a second time on the spot. This so first up on your track, motorcycle bungee jump. Yeah, Let's yeah. get it. Let's yeah, get this yeah, hard yeah, stuff out yeah. of the way. That's right, yeah. So then I'm walking in the streets of Kathmandu, I mean, uh, not Kathmandu, but uh, Bangkok, uh -huh. and I see a big poster in a travel store, uh, flights to Kathmandu, Nepal. Uh -huh. And I've always loved mountains since age uh, five. You know, I was uh, roaming around remote mountains of Hyampam, which is a uh, remote place inward from Eureka, California. They still don't have telephone service to this day. Huh. It's only because of satellite phone that they can communicate with the outside world now. But anyway, um, yeah, so I, that piqued my interest. And so I just bought a, a ticket. Uh, TW doesn't fly there, of course, um, uh, in a remote location like that. So I just got a separate ticket and went into Kathmandu. And that's where I started uh, uh, trekking. So this was completely impromptu. Impromptu, yes. Right. You, yes. you, you were on. You, you had you had a couple, couple months, and you were going. You saw a poster, so you went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you started trekking around uh, Kathmandu. Yes. The first thing I did was uh, like looked up the major trek that was the Annapurna Circuit. Okay. And it's a two-week trek, and you go, uh, you know, in this loop, counterclockwise, and uh, you go between Annapurna and Dalagiri Mountains, and you know, the Himalayas are very, you know, impressive, awesome site. Anyone mm -hmm. who enjoys hiking, uh, you should go there. Uh, so Annapurna is, uh, is one of the 14 peaks of the world that are over 8,000 meters. Mm -hmm. In other words, about 26,000 feet. So I thought, well, yeah, that's for me. So, you know, I was a greenhorn, didn't know the first thing about how to trek uh, anywhere, let alone in the highest mountains in the world, you know. So I did hire a porter, mm -hmm. a, a Sherpa, in the beginning. And after two days, I, I figured out, you really don't need a guide or a porter. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was carrying about 35, 40 pounds on my back. Yeah. And you get used to it after two or three days, you know. Your, your back kind of rails at it the first day, but, you know, you settle in. And so I, I released my guide after uh, a few days, and I just started trekking myself with a little guidebook like Lonely Planet. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it shows you the villages, and the, the whole country caters to trekkers. Interesting. So I probably did not spend more than uh, $10 a day for all I could eat and, uh, and a place to sleep. And what was the lodging like in that area? Uh, just very rustic. I mean, you don't go to Nepal for creature comfort. Uh -huh. You know, you're not going to find a Hilton Hotel. But it's know. a place to stay. It's a place to stay. It's comfortable. I mean, fresh air, clean air, uh, very interesting people that are friendly. And you're among the, you know, the most magnificent mountains in the world. 
And hmm. so, uh, yeah, the first, uh, first day I launched off, um, I saw two European guys, I think they were uh, from the Netherlands, rushing the opposite way. I mean, on a run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I quizzed them, what, what do you guys, what's happening? Oh, we got to find a doctor. Why? Oh, the, my friend got bitten by a rabid dog. Uh-oh. And so they had to rush and, you know, get the shots because, you know, rabies is a serious thing. Yeah. And I've seen dogs uh, uh, die in India, for example, from rabies. It's a gruesome disease. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, the, I started off on the Annapurna circuit. And uh, I was eating uh, uh, dalbat, which is rice and some lentils, little pulses, you know, like beans. Right. And it's a wholesome diet. Right, carbs um, and carbs and some yeah, protein, ex- right? Exactly, and you're trekking maybe uh, you know six to eight hours a day, and mm-hmm. I I, re- I tend to rather uh, uh, walk quickly, so I could usually cover two villages instead of you know one per day, and I, you know I wasn't running a race or anything, but you know that's just that was my style of walking. Uh-huh. So uh, I looked on the map and I saw this place called Tilicho Lake. It's about oh sixteen thousand. 500 feet thereabouts, right. and it, it was billed as the world's highest lake. And uh, I guess it depends on the definition of a lake, because, you know, what's the difference between a large pond and a small lake, you know? But anyway, this was a huge lake, and so uh, I was curious about it, so I went off the main trail, and I actually had to uh, uh, hop over some barricades. Uh, the army, uh, Nepali army was in that area, shutting things down because at that time there was a communist insurgency yeah and so they were trying to control that area remote as it was so uh, I went around the barricade no one was there went up to this little uh, village called Kangshar uh-huh. I think that's the right name and uh, it was like a medieval town everything made at this point in you know, a higher altitude everything made of stone it's like stepping back 500 years you know yeah and uh, I saw uh, late, I saw this uh, buckwheat buckwheat field, and workers, you know, working the field. But there was one lady off to the side, you know, looked rather weak and lethargic. And so uh-huh. I inquired about her, and uh, a gentleman told me that oh, uh, she's new mother, she just had a baby, and she's back to work two hours later. <laughs> you know, so, she's not lazy. You know, she had a baby, but don't worry. She'll be, yeah, back. Right. She'll be back to work oh, in a man. couple hours. Man, that just blew my mind. <laughs> she just needs to take a breather. <laughs> and I saw another lady, uh, you know, elderly lady. Um, I guess she had to relieve herself, you know, number one. Uh-huh. And they, they have these long maxi skirts, you know, really nice dresses. Uh-huh. And she was, she just went over to the side of the field and, and uh, she kind of spread her legs. And I could see kind of some water droplets coming out from under her skirt. And then I realized, oh, she's just relieving herself. And you're just standing there watching. Yeah, I'm, yeah, you know. <laughs> They're like, what's this guy doing? <laughs> Portable latrine, you know. Yeah. So anyway, um, and um, yeah, in, in, in that village, you know, I had been eating this uh, diet of dalbot all this time. And dalbot, so it's the it's basically lentils and rice. Or, yes, or like, yeah. But this is like a common staple. Like yes, If yes. you go it's, to a yeah. restaurant or whatever. Yeah. Not a restaurant, but if you if you ask someone for food, like that's yeah, it's just everybody the they're going to give you. you know, it's yeah. even in common in India. Yeah, okay? and it's it's wholesome for you. So, have, eating that diet, you know, for two weeks up to that time, you know, I'm kind of craving, you know, other flavors, especially meat. Mm-hmm. You know, so in this village, uh, 
I, I go into the kitchen, you know, a rustic kitchen, a fire, you know, wood fire going, and, you know, they hand me this menu. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's difficult to read. It's like chicken scratching on it, you know, and I can make out chicken. Oh, chicken. Oh, you have chicken? Yeah, yeah, you want, you know. So, yeah, I'd like some chicken, you know. So, um, you know, I, I'd settle down to, to have them prepare it and all. And a couple of minutes later, I hear all this commotion at the front door. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a chick, chicken uh, clucking and all. They open the door and a guy comes in and he hands me a live chicken. So, oh, what? You know, and so you got, I realized, well, Nepal is probably the only country in the world that is officially Hindu. Okay. And Buddhism, you know, come, is a spur of that, like uh, uh, Catholicism and Protestantism. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of commonalities, Hinduism and Buddhism. And, of course, one of the tenets is, you know, respect life and don't kill anything. Yeah. You know? And so he says, you know, here's your chicken. You kill, we cook. And so, huh. oh my gosh, really? And so I, I had, you know, experience, you know, butchering chickens on a farm in, in Centralia, Missouri huh. uh, before. So I knew exactly what to do, you know. So I took it out back and, and, uh, and, uh, and butchered it. And, uh, so, yeah, so it's, that's interesting because I, I guess you said they, they cater to trekkers. And I guess they, uh, hey, it's okay if you <laughs> want to eat your chicken. But we're not killing it. That's, that's right. basically that's the right. thing, right? That's like, right. So, so here you go. Like, we'll take care of it. But <laughs> oh it, wow, it, it tasted terrific. However, uh, you know, they—I had to teach them how to cut it up because you know, if you go to Popeyes or KFC, you know, uh, El Pollo Loco, you know, the pieces are cut at the joints. You have mm -hmm. a nice piece of meat. You know, these guys—they took the chicken. And fortunately, you know, they scalded it and plucked the feathers off because scalding, you know, will release the feathers more easily. But they took that chicken, put it on a chopping block, and proceeded just to hack it <laughs> to a million pieces. So you had all these splinters and bones, and they just threw it in a cauldron, you know, big uh, cooking uh, pot, and just, you know, cooked it that way. So it wasn't the best chicken you well, had? Well, you, you had to be careful not to pierce your mouth you know with these slivers of so meat. afterwards you showed them how to like, yeah yeah you know and I, well a part of it i explained to them yeah if you cut it this way at the joints you know it's huh it's probably preferable you know so the next trekker maybe got a little bit yeah, better yeah yeah you teach them how to roast it too not boil it right well they didn't boil they just put it in a pan with some oil and okay it tasted good you know so after you've been eating rice and beans yeah, yeah for all that yeah. time so this place was a very interesting in that, uh, you know, they get uh, uh, five to 10 feet of snow in a winter. Mm -hmm. So they, they have a second story to their homes and they live up there and they bring their, uh, the yaks, you know, the high altitude uh, bovines in their home and they live, you know, on the first floor. So they're, they're storing up uh, uh, hay and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. for the, the animals down there. And they have a cache of potatoes and, and rice and whatnot to, to uh, endure the wintertime. So these are very hardy people. So yeah. uh, the, the day that I wanted to go see the lake, you know, I, I, they boiled me some potatoes and uh, some food and, and put it in my pack. And um, I, you know, had a day pack. So I, I'm, I'm trekking to this, uh, 
this uh, lake, Tilichel Lake. Uh-huh. And man, the landscape was as if I were on the moon. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it before. There's these, you know, 200, 300 foot spires of uh, dirt just standing there with a the big boulder on top. Because through the hundreds of years, you know, it had weathered down. But that boulder on top protected the spire below. Interesting. And uh, the, the trail was very steep. And uh, there was uh, a lot of scree, you know, it's, uh, it's a gravel, yeah. gravel slope. And, and if you stood for any amount of time, you know, five seconds on that trail, then you would start sliding down. Yeah, so hiking you, on scree sucks. So you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you, you just have to keep moving. Yeah, you know? you got, yeah it's, it's almost like you're, you're, you're trying to like shuffle down. It's almost like you're sliding, yes, right? Yeah, and like you you're going slide. down a si- sand yeah. dune, you're not trying to... You're just trying to kind of control the descent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's really hard to go up. Going <laughs> up, it's the worst. Yeah. yeah. In this section, fortunately, we're going horizontal. Yeah. But still, you had to watch yourself. I, I made the mistake of trying to uh, avoid some yak dung on the trail. Yeah. And, uh, and. Oh, that's uh, a good foothold, right? Oh, man. I lost <laughs> my foothold and started sliding down. I made it back And then up. your face is in the yak dung. You're trying <laughs> to avoid it, but you face well, planted so, it. that's, you know, I, the saying is sometimes you can't avoid shit, you know? Yeah. So, that was one time I shouldn't have, uh, you know, tried to avoid it. But I, I started up the uh, steep ascent to the lake, uh-huh. and uh, I, I was not feeling well. And I came down with a touch of AMS. That's acute and acute mountain sickness, high altitude sickness. Right. And the uh, what happens is your digits start to swell up, your fingers, your toes. Did you have trek poles? No, no. Yeah. A lot of people use those, but I don't like those. Um, yeah. I think, you know, you become too dependent on on uh, balancing with those. Yeah, that's just a personal thing. I know of my buddy like... It helps uh, with the puffy hands. Well, you ever notice you get puffy hands when you uh, hike? Uh-uh. Anyway, but you had AMS. Yeah, I got a touch of AMS. And, you know, you feel nauseous, you get a headache, and your digits swell up. You just feel like crap. Uh-huh. And so as I'm going up, I mean, I got it pretty badly. And... I would literally take five steps, slowly, just five steps, and my lungs would be heaving, and I would have to rest a minute just to catch my breath. My heart was beating, uh, you know, a thousand times a minute. And were you by yourself? Uh, I, I had a German buddy with me. Okay. Okay. He, was, he, was, he did fine. Yeah. And in fact, he went ahead of me. Uh, but, you know, it was a slow slog for a couple of hours just to cover a quarter of a mile. Mm-hmm. Because when you're going that slowly, you know, I finally reached the top, saw this massive lake, and it was it was quite uh, quite an amazing sight. And I went down and uh, washed my face. It's glacial water, so it's almost 32 degrees. I mean, yeah. it, it, it hurts. And I stretched out and I took a short nap. That kind of revived me. Yeah. And the thing with AMS, if you ever come down with it, the antidote is to go back to the last place you felt comfortable. And within 24 hours, your body will recover. So you, you, you came down. Yeah, but you came, did see the lake. Yeah, I did see the lake. Yeah, yeah. you it pushed was, through it. It was impressive, yeah. Yeah. So then uh, came back down and uh, recovered from that. Then we, we backtracked to the main Annapurna Circuit Trail. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we hiked up uh, to uh, Trolong Pass. Trolong, Trolong uh, tro, La. That's the pat, Trolong Pass. And that's about, uh, ooh, uh, what, six, uh, 16, let's see, 17, about 18,000 uh-huh. uh, feet. So it's higher than ever space camp. 
Okay. And uh, then from there, it's just, you know, steep down to a place called Muktanat. And uh, along the way, I, I discovered uh, marine fossils. Really? Even that high. Why? Because, you know, the Deccan uh, Peninsula of India smashed up against the uh, Asian continent. And that's what uplifted the Himalaya mountain range. Doesn't that blow your mind? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, yeah. The highest points on Earth used to be the bottom of an ocean somewhere? That's, that's right, yeah, yeah. And you see that and you're like, yeah. what? Yeah. You know? And the Himalayas are still rising because of that, you know, a few centimeters a year. Uh, uh, Everest is what, 29,000, 29 feet, but it's probably over that now. Yeah. And so, yeah, you see these. Uh, I don't know if Andy has a photo of the. Uh, of the skull that I found in, near Muktanat. Uh, I was just uh, trekking down, saw yeah, this human right skull. Here. Yeah, is that, you see that's it? That's a yeah. good, that, yeah, that's a striking picture. Yeah. So, uh, how old were you in that picture? Well, you want to guess? What do I, okay, I'll let you guess. I what do, what do, what do you, I look like now? You're a tough read, man. <laughs> um, I'd say in that picture, you are. 24 years old. Well, add about uh, 10 years to that. You're 34 in that picture? Yeah, yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Healthy living, huh? Yes, I guess so. Well, I, you know, I never got married, so that might do some, have something to do with it. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> marriage, marriage helps you out. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it should I'll help you out. I'll take your word right? for it. Yeah. If, if you do it right, it makes you a better yeah, person. Yeah, that, it helps you out, yeah, yeah. de-stresses your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, that if I've, it's stressful, I don't know. I've seen good examples of that. You're correct. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, so this I, is a skull you found? Yeah, um, it's just on the side of the trail, and you know there were moss and lichens growing on it, and I had my buddy you know, snap the shot. And hmm. later when I got back to the U.S., I, I had a friend who worked in the police department, and I asked, she's a forensic scientist, and I asked her, well, can you kind of tell me anything about this skull? And uh, she told me, well, it's female. And, the, and the, the lady was about 35 years old. How'd she, she know that from that picture? Well, I know. She's a forensic scientist. She works with police, you know, to crime scenes and all that, you know. She knew it was female from the skull? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's what she told me, and I haven't changed the story, you know. So anyways... It uh, is a small skull. Like, so compared to your head, it's like... <laughs> so I, you know, I tell people that's my girlfriend. That she's sort of an airhead, but we get along. Yeah. <laughs> and you left your girlfriend in, back in Nepal. So, uh, so where did yeah, you guys go from there? Well, so, uh, you know, I'm continuing around the Annapurna circuit, and uh, 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 Jomsom was a place, uh, you, actually planes can fly in there. Passed that up, and I'm still trekking. And at one halt, I, I ordered some soup, and I think it probably came out of a package because, man, I got sicker than a dog. And I'd met up with, uh, I was solo by this time, I'd met up with a... Uh, a guy from uh, England, mm -hmm. a barrister from London, and we had a nice talk. We we're kind of trekking together. Barrister's a lawyer. Lawyer, yeah. yeah. And uh, and but then after lunch, I really got sick, and uh, I was uh, I was uh, expelling fluids from both ends. Let's put it that way. Not yeah, we know that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, just retching on the trail, and and I had to slow up, and 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 my next halt was you know miles and miles up the trail. And uh, fortunately, we had a full moon that night, so you know I could continue trekking after the the sunset. And then by 1 a.m., I I wandered into this little village, wrapped on the door, and uh, you know proprietor let me in. And in the bed, you know I see in this room was that that barrister friend. <laughs> he was sound asleep. Yeah. Know? So I'd caught up with him. You know. Uh, that's good. So uh, 
So what yeah, do you think it was? You think it was, you think it was the soup packet, or you think yeah, it was I think the water it was a they soup, made probably it. old soup packet, you know, and it, it was like tomato soup. I thought, well, that sounds uh, probably probably botulism in the can. Well, right? whatever, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, all these places are very remote, and so you know, but you know, and it, should it should it shouldn't should have picked the rice and beans, right? <laughs> all right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but that, you know that kind of restored my uh, confidence in the human body. I mean, it's, this machinery is amazing. Yeah, you know, with the immunities and everything that it develops, and you know, I really wasn't uh, scared for my life or anything. I just knew it was you know a little bump in the road, uncomfortable yeah. as it was, you know. But it got, it got over it. Thing made me stronger for sure. So uh, after that trek, I went down into the second largest city uh, of Nepal, Pokhara. And uh, there's a nice big lake there. Um, and so I was just elated to have finished this major trek, mm -hmm. seen all these sights, you know, and uh, it was warm, nice and warm for a change. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I uh, hired a, a, a mountain bike, just rented a mountain bike. And uh, it was like a, you know, 27 speed, you know. So, um, I, I stripped down, I, you know, shirtless. I'm, I'm going down this, uh, this uh, uh, dirt road, you know, in the highest gear. I was just buzzing. I was really feeling great. And right. up ahead, I saw this water buffalo. And I didn't imagine that just as I passed, it would turn its head. And I caught my handlebar on its horn. <laughs> and I went airborne flying. Oh, man. And I landed, and, uh, you know, my back was all scratched up. And... Uh, I felt with my tongue inside my uh, mouth and I felt a gap. I had popped out my canine tooth. Still gone, huh? Uh, yeah, well, this is, you know, a, 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 what do you call it? The a, implant? The implant yeah. thing, you know, that I was, uh, looked like snaggle tooth for <laughs> the longest time, you know, around India. So you were like, you, you were on that high, yeah. just having fun on this bike, and you're pro like, you know, water buffalo are big. So oh, yeah. I, I imagine you were getting kind of close to them. But you just didn't think he was going to turn around and look at you. No, I just, yeah, I, I, I was dumb. I should not have got that close to him. It was a narrow, yeah. narrow road, you know. And uh, I just, you know, he was, I could see him from a distance, and he was just walking on the side. But yeah. just as I passed him, he turned his head, you know, and just hooked me. You know. <laughs> Bike was okay. You know, my body wasn't much. But as I straggled into my uh, guest house, um, I passed a bookstore, and in the window was this book called Annapurna. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, okay, it was a very thin book. And so I bought it just to learn about the mountain that I just passed, you know, uh, Annapurna. And it was written by Maurice Herzog and uh, Louis Lachenau, two Frenchmen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the first ascent of an 8,000-meter 8, 8, peak. I told you there's 14 of them in right. the world. And uh, uh, they did that in 1950. And, uh, you know, you can imagine back then, no GPS, no cell phone, oh, uh, yeah. you know, the, uh, no high-tech uh, clothing, all that. And these gents got up there, and it's just like 26,000 feet. And, uh, you know, they had to record the event to prove they were on the summit, right? So uh, uh, Maurice, he, he takes off one glove to handle the camera. Well, uh -huh. he dropped his glove. And he saw it slithered yep. down the mountainside. And from then on, everything just went to hell. Okay? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had a terrific time just getting off the mountain. It, it's much more dangerous actually coming down a mountain than mm -hmm. it is going up. 
You know, use a lot of energy going up, but gravity is against you when you're coming down. So if you slip, you know, there's the gravity pulls you down. You know? I was just looking this week at some guys that I, I, I guess it's common. I don't know why I never picked up on it, but there are, there are some people that have paraglided off of Everest. Right. Have you seen that? Yes. Yes. That seems like a really good way to go. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure how much more dangerous it is, but I mean, after making that climb and then having to come back down, like you said, it's yeah. much more dangerous. Yeah, yeah. It seems like paragliding is a very, very good option <laughs> to get off. Yeah. And I don't know where they land. I mean, shoot, you could land anywhere, right? Uh, yes, but you know, if they have control, and you know, which they do, of the updraft, and you know, there's there's landings. But I'll get to Everest Base Camp in a minute. Okay. Okay, but, so you, uh, you, on this track, you decided to track to Everest Base Well, yeah, it, it influenced me to do that, yeah. So uh, uh, Lachinal and Herzog, you know, they came down, and uh, the the was down below, you know, with their binoculars could see it. They were having a difficult time coming uh -huh. down. So uh, they they went up to assist them. And the the, uh, the Sherpas are rather diminutive, you know, uh, peoples, you know. Uh, you know, small and stocky. They're powerful, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, uh, two Sherpas, as I recall the story, uh, uh, they roped off with uh, uh, Herzog. Maurice is, a, you know, six foot six, uh, you know, a very tall Frenchman. So, you know, those, those three are, uh, are tethered together. And as they're coming down, a mini avalanche swept them off the the path. Well, there's no path, you know. Yeah. Swept them off, and and uh, the two Sherpas went on one side, Maurice went on the other of this little cornice, and they yeah. perfectly balanced each other. Otherwise, they would have been toast. Jeez. So think about that, you know, just a freak thing like that, and they survived. So the other guys came back and pulled them up, you know. Huh. Maurice had a horrible time when he reached base camp. He literally wanted to die because he was in so much pain. Frostbite had set in all his digits, uh -huh. and the doctor said, "Now we, you know, if we're gonna, if we're gonna save you, we, we gotta put some of this, you know, essentially blood antifreeze in your body." Yeah. And there's only like two places you can do it: it's either the armpit or the groin. So they selected the armpit. Yeah. And they, the Sherpas, you know, ten of them or whatever, held him down, and he was just screaming, and and the doctor pushed that needle through the, the, the main vein there Ugh. and and it saved his life, you know. But he really wanted, he was in so much pain, he did want to die, uh, you know, prayed for death at that point. Cool. But he, he got back down to the lowlands and, uh, you know, going across, I think he met the king of uh, Nepal at the time uh -huh. and uh, trained right over to New Delhi. And as they're going, the, the doctor was, you know, taking care of uh, Maurice and he, you know, squeeze his little finger. It was black by this point. So, can you feel that? No. Okay. Snip. He amputated <laughs> it. So he did that with all his digits, and then you know they had to sweep out these uh, black uh, uh, digits. You know, human fingers and toes. And the people that are standing by the train, they're watching all these things come out. You know, sweep being swept out. You know, and they're standing there aghast, not knowing what the heck is happening. You know. But he lost all all his. Uh, all his fingers and toes, and wow. but you know it, it didn't stop him. Uh, he went back to uh, uh, France. I think he became the minister of sports, and he died at a ripe old age of 91, 92. Yeah, you know, it was, he's he's quite a quite a man. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I read all through the night while I'm you know toothless and uh, bloody back. You know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that that was a great trek there. 
And so from there, I descended into India. And uh, so what made so so you got a ticket or, or, or you just crossed the border? Um, I took uh, let's see, I think I did fly just a very short flight, you know, uh -huh. uh, Indian Airlines. Okay. And uh, uh, parachuted over uh, New Delhi, not literally, of course, but you know, landed there. At, you know, the more time you spend on the road in these unusual places, you know, to if it's a, your first time, I me, mean, I think you grow as a person. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you question your values, your beliefs. You, you know, I talk to gurus, engineers, philosophers, the common person on the street, restauranteurs, you know, you just uh, it, it helps you grow as a person. Yeah. So in New Delhi, uh, yeah, I saw, you know, my, most of the major sites there, Chandigarh and uh, I mean, uh, Kanot Place, uh, you know, historic places. Uh, we could spend an hour just talking about what's in New Delhi, but you know, I'll yeah. proceed with our uh, round-the-world trip. So from there, I went to a place called Chandigarh, where the, there's a, a population of sheiks. You've seen the Indians with the turbans, right? right. I mean, those 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 are sheik peoples, okay? And they, their their clan is distinguished by the color of the turban. So I befriended one guy who had a turquoise. He was of the turquoise tribe or clan you know very nice guy these are very intelligent people often mistaken for muslim you know uh -huh. just you know out people's ignorance you know uh, they make fine doctors engineers you know they're they're very accomplished people and they immigrate into the u.s you know so the, the turban is, is is i mean it's a religious thing but it's also an ethnic thing like if yes yes, turban, yes they're not necessarily uh um some sort of um uh, clergy or whatever. No, no, it's just it, the common, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I think part of it is because these sheiks, you know, in according to their beliefs, you know, they should not cut their hair. So the men have really long hair, and they, they, they wrap it up, and the turban serves to hold that okay. in place, too. So there's a functional reason as well. Yeah. So Chandigarh is a very interesting place, Sukhna Lake, uh, the rock garden. Uh, I did happen to wander into Mother Teresa's orphanage. Mm -hmm. So she had started that many, many years ago before she had become famous. You know, So that was interesting. From there I went up to a place called Dharamsala. And that's in the foothills of the Himalayas where the Dalai Lama lives now. So he, he, was, uh, you know, he escaped out of India uh, in 1959. Okay. And, uh, and that's where you know, he lives now. This, his, India gave him... Uh, uh, you know, permission to stay and there. And that's like an independent um, area. Uh, no, it's it's India proper. You know, it's 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 India. But uh, uh, they, uh, you know, they. It, it's, uh, the Dalai Lama has a compound there, and uh, and the reason I went up there was not to meet the Dalai Lama, although I it happened that I did later. I went up there to go trekking. Because mm -hmm. it's against the foothills of the Himalayas. So uh, as I was there and just uh, trekking around the area, I, I found out, well, yeah, if you want to, you can get an, you know, an audience with the Dalai Lama. And uh, I was keen to do that because years earlier when I worked in Korea as a business consultant, uh, I had taken a two-week vacation to Tibet, to Lhasa. And I'd seen the Potala Palace, you know, magnificent medieval structure. And, uh, and uh, that's where I, you know, I, I bought the, the uh, autobiography of the Dalai Lama. And in it, he explained you know, uh, how he escaped and 
you know, many of the, the uh, donkeys and whatnot, uh, mules was it, that, that uh, fell off the cliff and burst their guts on the trail. And, you know, so he, now you're in his, his village. So now I'm in, in his where town. he's residing in India. And you, you know. find out that you can go see him That's if you right, apply yeah. to... Yeah, so you just show your passport, they register, and uh, on the day you meet him, you know, uh, they, 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 uh, they check for any weapons or anything, you know, because he's a, he's a controversial figure to some, especially China, since they, you know, took over Tibet. Uh, there's, you know, vast uh, mineral resources, uranium, et cetera, yeah. that are important. It's not just, you know, they didn't just grab a piece of uh, land. It's the, most, it's the average highest land mass if it were a, its own separate country. Right. You know, so uh, there, there's, uh, there's uh, reasons why China took, took it over, you know. So uh, on the day that I went uh, there, you know, there's a line of people uh, waiting, and the Dalai Lama came out, and uh, before he meets the foreigners, he greets uh, any Tibetans that have recently escaped from China. Oh, and this one uh, nun, um, she, she was presented, and it, upon seeing the Dalai Lama, she just uh, collapsed and wept. She was in such uh, reverence for, hmm. you know, he, he, the Dalai Lama is revered almost like a god there, you know. So um, he, he, you know, bid her to, to stand up, asked her some question, and he instructed uh, his uh, 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 assistant to help find her a job and, and things like that. So it was, he really showed a lot of compassion wow. for this lady. And then, uh, yeah, one by one, people come up. And, uh, so it's an individual, like, meet yes, and greet? Yes, yes. So does he, does he bless you? or Yes, in you fact, get, you before, get a conversation you know, or? I had prepared for the meeting. So I, I, I wore this one shirt that said the Burang Jin on it. I had it uh, uh, sewn on my shirt, T-shirt. And uh -huh. that's what I trekked with, you know. So I washed it and I folded it. And, and when I got up to the Dalai Lama, you know, he greeted me. We exchanged some pleasantries, and you know, I, I pulled out that shirt and I, I asked him, you know, Your Holiness, would you mind uh, blessing this shirt for me? Oh, sure, you know. And he he blessed it, and he gives a kada. It's it's a it's a, like a uh, scarf, a uh -huh. silken scarf, and you know, you greet him, and he places this uh, silken scarf around your neck, and uh, you know, I kept that for many years. I'll get. I'll finish that story up in a minute, too. But then uh, as I started leaving, he says, young man, you know, come back. You know, oh, what did I do wrong, you know? He says, uh, what did I just bless? You know, and then I showed it, showed it to him. And it, Buirangjin in Tibetan means free Tibet. Then, you know, he got it right away. Because it was written in English, not the Tibet, Tibetan script, you know. Interesting. So he, he blessed it again, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, that was my... Uh, meeting with the Dalai Lama. Strangely, you know, they say nothing happens uh, by chance. And I ran into the Dalai Lama, met him twice after that without trying. You know? Really? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, there's some connection there. On this trek or? On, or? on yeah, in that, in that same time frame, yeah. In the whole three-year period you met him? Yeah, well, because I had gone back up to, uh, well, I'd gone to the other side of uh, India and met him in Shikim, where he okay. was, and, uh, and then I met him on a, on the airplane, uh, and you know wow. I, I said Tashtilek, and I greeted him, and he re, he remembered me. You know, oh, that, that's cool. That, yeah, so 
So, uh, yeah, um, let's see, where am I on this trek? Oh, you just met the Dalai Lama. That's yeah, okay, yeah, so, yeah. And then uh, after that, then I came back down to the lowlands. Few people realize that uh, India, you know, when you see movies and whatnot, is hot, dusty, flat, you know, dirty. Um, but India is also home to the third highest mountain in the world. Really? And uh, it's Which called, mountain is that? It's called Kanchenjunga. And that's over in, in the Darjeeling area. And I'll get back to that in a moment. To get there, though, uh, I, I, get, I went down to the lowlands and I started across the northern part of India. You know, you, you have to see the Taj Mahal. Uh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Okay? Yeah. Rabindranath, the, uh, the Nobel laureate, he said of the Taj Mahal, it's a, like a teardrop on the face of humanity. I mean, it's, it's just an exquisite building from afar. But if you get close to it, as I am to you, you see this intricate uh, inlay work yeah, of and, stone. Yeah, just put in there piece by piece. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, huge, it's, it's huge amazing. Building. Yeah. Rick Flora is one of my you know, the buddies and past president here. He was over there uh, not long ago, and he saw it. He was really astounded. In wow. fact, he bought a, a piece of... Uh, of, uh, I don't know what you call it, a pot, I guess, with the same kind of artwork. Mm. And if you shine a light inside it, 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 it just blows your mind. So it if you up. go to India, you need to, you know, to look at the Taj Mahal. I mean, sure. I'm not a fan of going, you know, running to a famous place, taking a snapshot and running to another place and doing that. Take time to, to imbibe the local culture and yeah. learn about the country. And that's what I was doing in India. So I, I kept going across. Uh, the next major stop was a place called Banaras, uh, Varanasi today. It's by the Ganges River. The Ganges River is holy to the Hindu people because, uh, uh, well, it has a, a bacteriophage, you know, the, uh, a bacteria that eats bacteria. So it was okay. a very clean river, and the headwaters are actually in the Himalayas, okay? Uh, unfortunately, because of the oppressive humanity that relies on that river, uh, sections of it are not so clean. And that includes uh, Varanasi. But the interesting thing there was, uh, this is a holy city. So people, especially near the end of their days, you know, their sunset years, they all gravitate to Varanasi. They want to die there uh, because of its holy status. So you have these burning ghats. And they're they're raised got yeah G H A T got got and uh, it's just a place where funeral pyres are and so you know it, depending on your relative financial status you know if you're a poor man you just get a simple linen covering over your corpse and you, uh -huh. and and your body is burned you know with a cord of wood there if you're very rich you can hire. Uh, priests, you can have garlands uh, of flowers, uh, you can have a silk covering, and a very elaborate uh, ceremony, okay? And, and, I, and I watched all of this, you know, the high and the low. The funny thing was, near the burning ghats are, is a crematorium, electric uh, crematorium, and you could, you know, maybe get a cremation for $2 there, instead of paying you know, twenty dollars, which is a princely sum there, right? Or you know, two thousand dollars. These burning gods, you know. Man, but, what a! I, you don't get that in the U.S. I feel like you can't uh, be dispatched via 
uh, funeral pyre. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I haven't. I've always said that. That's <laughs> the you know. My wife asked me, "Well, do you want to be cremated?" I'm like, "No, no, no. Yeah. I don't want to be just cremated." <laughs> You I want, want a, a funeral pyre, yeah, yeah. like drifted out to sea, and and yeah, someone yeah. shoots a flaming arrow at it, well, which yeah. is which I, I, I mean, seems like the best. It would way be to go. meaningful, you know. It and would the be Vikings meaningful. did that, you know. Or have you, are, are you a Burning Man guy? I forget. Are you part of the crew that goes to Burning no, Man? No, I yeah. haven't. Uh, I'd like to. That but would I... be a great funeral pyre. <laughs> they should sell that. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you so, it, yeah back it, to India. Well, you in in this whole thing as you're watching people, you know, uh, you know they they dip the body, the corpse into the Ganges River um, as a cleansing ritual, and they set it up on this. Uh, 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 they they've stacked up wood. You know, the wood drifts down from you know miles above, and they collect it and they they uh, make this sort of bonfire. Uh, Thing and they put the corpse on it, and the, the shamans or priests or holy men, you know, they they do their chanting, go around whatever many times is is required, and uh, they light the the fire, and they they throw pellets, you know, flammable pellets of something, and it just you know fire goes up, it singes the the covering, the shroud right off. And then the flame will catch the hair, and that just singes off. You know, and there's a peculiar smell to all this. I don't know if you've ever smelled burning hair, and yeah. then burning flesh. I mean, human flesh. Yeah. And it, you know, the it, the skin gets charred. I don't want to get too graphic for some of you who are watching. You know, but uh, let me just describe it uh, a little further. So. The uh, the skin turns black. It, you hear the sizzle of human flesh, and it, you know at the 15, 20 minute mark, uh, one of these guys comes around with a huge wooden staff, and to the head of the corpse, and he raises it up, and bam, he smashes it down on the skull, and the the human brains you know come out sizzling, and in this way they believe that the spirit or soul of the person. You know, goes up uh, huh. into uh, the next world. You know, and and all this, you know, it, it it gets you to thinking about life. Yeah, seriously, and you see it in the raw. You know, well, I think you know, oftentimes when we hear about someone, a body being burned, it's a very, uh, it, it's not it's not a good thing, right? This is a very beautiful thing. This is a spiritual yes, thing. Yes. This is this is like a celebration and releasing yes. the soul. I think normally when we hear about burning flesh and stuff like that, it's some, something yeah, horrific, right. horrific and, and is going on. And what are we, on. but, you know... It's, but this it, isn't a horrific thing. This no, is, no. To, to me, it, like you used beautiful the word beautiful. Thing. You know, I, I, it was beautiful in that, you know, we... we it's, a, it's a miracle that you and I are sitting here as human beings, but it, we're a combination of, uh, of uh, atoms and molecules, you know. Mm -hmm. Let's put the spirit aside for now, you know. We're imbued with the spirit, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's energy, and it's just energy changing forms. You right. Know? E equals MC squared, you know, as Einstein put it. So it, it's a different form of energy, you know. So you, you, you ponder all these and things, and uh, again, I think in doing so, you, you grow as a person. You know? So hmm. from there, um, I saw... So, and this, vi and this uh, village or, or city that you went, this was kind of like their thing. Like this was a... a uh, a place that people would 
would trek to at yes, the end of yeah. their life. This is because, not just a village. This is a major city. Yeah. Probably millions of people. But one of the things that they're famous for... <laughs> yes. is, is, it's a holy is, city. It's a holy city where, you know, you, you want to be... You go to die. Um, yeah. And, and burned. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So from there I went, uh, uh, continued across from, uh, from west to east, and I... Uh, uh, I visited. Uh, let's see, what's this? Sarnath. Yeah, that's where the uh, that's where the uh, uh, that's where the Buddha supposedly got his enlightenment. And there's a Bodhi tree there that he sat under when mm -hmm. he reached enlightenment. Uh, few people know that uh, Siddhartha, you know, the Buddha, as it was a prince of a noble family, uh, you know, very well to do, and he was born in the uh, town, current town of Lumbini. In, uh, in Nepal, mm -hmm. and uh, he, you know, everything, life was good for him, but then, you know, he, he went out of the compound and saw people suffering, dying and sick, you know, and that really changed him. So he, he wandered about and uh, uh, in, in, uh, in this place under this tree, you know, he, quote, reached enlightenment, mm -hmm. and the rest is history, as they say. So he was a Hindu before he became you know, started Buddhism, let's say. Right. Yeah. So from there I went to uh, uh, Calcutta, present-day Kolkata, and, uh, and uh, there's lots to see there. And I, one day, uh, well, before I get to that story, let me say that uh, there's a five-star hotel called the Oberai. Okay. You know, it's a swank, luxurious hotel. I'm sure it's still there. But uh, I would take my meals there, but sleep you know, in a in a guest house, it costs maybe ten dollars rather than yeah. one hundred or two hundred dollars. Now, what were you eating while you're in India? Um, well, in India, because I hear that's a decision that everybody has to make. And uh, <laughs> well, I, yeah, because before you were eating the local fare, which right, was rice right. and beans, and, and you know, I did the I, I did largely eat local fare that uh -huh. was cooked. Okay, um, I even went to roadside eateries, but if if you know. I, I, for some reason, for example, I had a hankering for a cucumber, and I just I asked him, "Let me have cucumber." He was gonna peel it, slice it, and throw his spices. I said, "No, no, no! I just want the cucumber." Oh, okay. So with the cucumber, I had my own knife, and I just peeled it myself and ate it, knowing uh -huh. that it was safe to eat. Yeah. Because uh, you know, sometimes like with water bottles, I mean, these guys are very uh, entrepreneurial. You know, in in not a good way. They'll 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 take a water bottle that a tourist throws out, and uh, retrieve it, yeah. fill it with water, and put the seal back, the cap back on to where it looks like it's, you know, not been tampered with. And yeah. if you drink that water, you're gonna get Montezuma's revenge. Believe right. me. So I, I I befriended people that I trusted, you know, store owners, and they would give me, you know, good water, et cetera, et cetera. I can treat that water too. I feel like <laughs> I would treat it. You know? Well, I did have uh, some uh, water treatment pills for when that was, you know, yeah. I had to use them. But well, you know, it works well too because I've used the iodine pills. Uh huh. They taste awful. Yeah. It, right. It, and then they have just, the other stuff. You put it in there, and it tastes a little bit less awful. Yeah. But um, just chlorine bleach, like a couple drops per liter. Uh huh. Because, you know, we're pretty used to the taste of chlorine. Right, right. Um, and it does the job. Most of city up. water is chlorinated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, every, yeah. everything we drink is chlorinated. Yeah, so you yeah. just do that. And yeah, right, It's right. a pretty good deal. And, and you're used to the flavor. It doesn't taste like iodine. Right, right, right. It tastes <laughs> awful. So the anyway. reason I went to the near the Oberai was because uh, uh, in my guidebook, I, there was a place called Suter Street. 
which is maybe one or two blocks away from this luxurious hotel. And what happens every Sunday, uh, there's a you know, group of people who are trying to help out the indigent and the poor. And so uh, they gather, they cook some food, and they serve it to people. And I just wanted to, you know, go observe that from a distance, you know, see what's going on. And so when I got there, you know, yeah, again, this sort of uh, makes you think about life. Long line of people, you know, they had beat-up pans, a dirty, you know, uh, plasticware, uh, even newspaper to receive this rice and other food, you know. Well, one one uh, teenage guy, he, he had nothing, just loincloth and, you know, kimped hair and, you know, cake of uh, dirt on his body. And he was hungry, obviously. He came up and he just put out, his, you know, palmed his hands. Mm -hmm. And they just obliged him and they, you know, put scalding hot rice in his hands. And he, he you know, he was appreciative and ate that. And so, yeah, that just uh, was the juxtaposition of the high and the low, rich. Just and the two poor. blocks away from this, yeah, yeah, two hundred dollar a night hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, going back yeah, to why I, you know, I took some meals there. So, you know, I knew it would be safe, uh -huh. and uh, it also it, I, it gave me some uh, taste of Western food for a change. Uh -huh. But generally, I, I, I ate local fare. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Indian food is good. Uh, there's some that's not, but you know every culture has the good and the bad, you know. So uh, in in Calcutta, Kolkata, you know, I wanted to visit this. There's a major museum there. Uh -huh. It was is very hot, bloody hot, and uh, I, I got to this museum, and it, there was just uh, the line was too long. I, I didn't have the patience or the will, you know, to wait in this uh, uh, oppressive heat. heat. Yeah, it was just. So I started wandering around that area, and lo and behold, I look up and I see the sign, Mother Teresa, you know, compound or whatever the sign said. And I didn't imagine that she would even be there because she had just had open-heart surgery. But, you know, I was curious, you know, since I had seen her orphanage in Chandigarh, I thought, well, I'd, let me just check this out. And, you know, the nuns were there with their white robes and the, the distinctive blue lines, you know, on the edge. Went in there. And I noticed a group of Italian ladies in the corner. Uh -huh. they, they were talking amongst themselves. And to my amazement, outbounded Mother Teresa. Huh. And she, you know, the, the Italian ladies came over and they're talking to her. And, you know, I didn't want to be obtrusive or anything. So I just stood back in the corner. And she, Mother Teresa kept eyeing me, you know. And finally, she just called me over. And so, you know, I went over and... You know, she asked me, what's, what's your name and where are you from? I told her, well, you know, I'm Korean-American, you know, originally from Korea. And she said, oh, my, you know, we have such wonderful sisters in Korea. And she reached in her pocket and, and pulled out some amulets, little, uh, little things that she had designed, pressed out of uh, aluminum, had uh -huh. MT on it and uh, vis visage of uh, Mother Mary on the other side and bas relief. Uh -huh. And she just handed me a, a, like a dozen of those things. You know, she kissed them and handed them to me. I only have one left because all my Catholic friends, you know, wanted you one. Yeah. You know, um, so that that was my encounter with uh, Mother Teresa. So so far, first of all, how how far into this trek are you? How many months in? Oh, this must have been uh, three or four at this. So point. you're four months in, and you've already met the Dalai Lama, <laughs> trekked around um, Nepal. Yeah, in the Himalayas. Yeah, yeah, 
and met Mother Teresa yeah. in Calcutta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty good. So you got a taste for taste for trekking at this point. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you're supposed to be done. You told me is a three month trip. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I, I didn't have. Any... Is this a picture of you and Mother Teresa? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. Yeah, yeah. I was looking. You're 34 in that picture, Kevin. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> Man, and so uh, yeah, um, I, I got sidelined. I should have before Calcutta. I should have told you that I went to uh, uh, Mumbai. You know Mumbai? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was you know Bombay. I like the old uh, the old names better, but I went to to Bombay, and again there was a Oberai hotel. And I stayed in a you know five dollar flop house behind it, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, I woke up one night and I and I looked out and I saw a sea of humanity, you know, slumbering on the street. And they do uh-huh. this every night. They don't have a place to sleep, you know. And what what amazed me was there are huge rodents. I mean, rats that you could saddle up and ride. I mean, huge <laughs> things just crawling all over, you know, and on the people, you know. Uh, and I, man, that made me very thankful for a bed, you know. Yeah. And so there, I met uh, uh, Mingma Lama and uh, Pak Sugyong. So Mingma was from Darjeeling. Okay. And uh, and uh, uh, Sugyong, she's from Korea. Okay. And we befriended each other, and we decided I'll meet up in Darjeeling, and that's not far from Calcutta. You go up north in West Bengal. And as you recall, the, uh, the, uh, the Brits had, you know, given the rights to, uh, to manage India to the East India Company when it was a colony. Okay. And their headquarters was in Calcutta. It was oppressively hot there in the summers. So they reconnoitered uh, the foothills of the Himalayas for a summer capital. And they w- got to the Darjeeling, and there was a, there's a beautiful promontory there. And your, your face is just smacked with the visage of Kanchenjunga, the third highest mountain in the world. And so it's, it's relatively cool there. You've heard of Darjeeling? Yeah. Darjeeling tea? Exactly. And that's where the, you know, the, uh, the Queen of England drinks her tea from Darjeeling because it's considered the best, you know, the champagne of teas. And it, the East India Tea Company, did they basically give Darjeeling its name? Like, because they... I mean, if that's their summer headquarters... Yeah, no, I don't believe so. I believe the, the name was uh, get, there well, long, I mean, long the, before. But, I mean, we know Darjeeling Tea because the East India Tea Company... Oh, yeah, they, they, they made it famous. Yeah, they, yeah. they made it famous, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, it, there's a lot of lightning there in the summers. You know, I actually stayed there seven months. In, the reason, in Darjeeling? In Darjeeling. And the reason was, uh, when I first got there, I met a, a couple, Prim and Hima... Uh, Mokhtan, and maybe Andy can pull up a picture of them. Um, such very kind people. Is this them here? Yes, that's them. And that, now, how did I meet them? They, they were uh, managing the youth hostel okay. there, there in Darjeeling. And, you were uh, staying in a youth hostel at 34 years old? Yes. It's because you look like you're 24. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, Prim and Hema, I mean... God love them. They're they're such uh, wonderful people. He's passed away, unfortunately. But uh, and you spent seven months with them there. Yes, and the reason why is because when when I got to speaking with them, uh, and I shared my story with them, you know, I had sort of a rough uh, upbringing as a child, and uh, they told me their story. They were childless, 
Well, they had lost two sons. How? Uh, Darjeeling, uh, you know, the, 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 that whole area is populated with the Nepali descendants. In fact, they still retain the culture and the language, you know, Nepali language. They're technically Indian citizens, but they're Nepali, okay, by culture. So uh, there's probably still to this day, there's so much uh, infighting as to controlling the, uh, the, the local government. And uh, Prem, he's, you know, very upright uh, man of integrity. And he, he was speaking out against some of the, the things that the, the, the uh, uh, people were doing in gov local government. And he was so outspoken that they wanted to do him in meaning kill him. So what did they do? Uh, uh, he, you know, as I said, they were managing the youth hostel, so they had their own little flat. So they, they one night, they broke into the, their living quarters and mis mistook his son, uh, Priya was his name, uh, uh, for, for Prim, the father, because, you know, he, uh, Priya was in bed and, uh, you know, cover over him. They, they thought that uh, that was the father. And they suffocated him. Jeez. Now, can you, you know, you have a son. Can you imagine losing your son? I mean, that way, it's just uh, horrible, you know? Yeah. So then they, that left their younger, younger son, Dibia. And he was a trekker. He led treks to Sandakpu and Falut, the two highest points in the area. A very beautiful trek. Yeah. But uh, on, on one trek, uh, he fell off the mountain and Jeez. he died. So now the, the, the grief and the pain of this couple that had lost two sons, you know. And I, I, we sort of connected and I uh, sort of became a surrogate son, I suppose. And in fact, I still call uh, Hima Ams, which is an endearing term for mother, you mm -hmm. know, Ama Ams. And uh, she, she's still living, and, but, you know, she's lived with this uh, heavy weight on her heart. Yeah. So, you know, I tried to be there to kind of help them overcome that. Um, so that was that was my stint in. Uh, so you stayed there for uh, seven months. Seven were months. Were you just, were you? Well, total, because I had to go in and out of India because you only have a six-month visa. I see. So I had to go back to, to uh, Nepal and re-up my visa and then get back in. And so, um, yeah, I ended up spending a total of 13, 14 months in India. Wow. So uh, after Darjeeling, um, uh, I, I returned to Nepal because I wanted to this time go to Mount Everest Base Camp. And uh, I went from Kathmandu, flew in a little plane to Lukla Airport, which is an asphalted runway now. But when I did it in the early 90s, it was a dirt runway hugging the side of a mountain. And it wasn't <laughs> flat. It, was, it's, it sloped. Okay. Yeah. And the end of it is there's a mountain at, at the end of it, you know. So uh, as I was telling my good friend uh, Ava Peel, you know, she's the wife of Bob Silver. Uh -huh. And she, she thought I was crazy to even do it. But, you know, I'm alive, right? But uh, we flew in there through a, th a thick fog. And you can't see anything. And the, and the pilot banked the, the, the plane hard. And I, I looked down and I could see the runway come into view. And I, holy shit, what I see is the damaged fuselage of a plane that had crashed right beside the, the gravel runway. What happened to that plane? Oh, <laughs> the, the fog was too thick. <laughs> what about today? 
So I, I look around me and all the other uh, passengers, you know, they're white knuckling their armrests, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, their eyes get big when an alarm goes off in the plane, which indicates you don't have enough lift to keep the airplane aloft. Okay. But the, the pilot is okay with it because he's done this dozens of times, you know. He knows well exactly how to maneuver the craft, you know. So the, the alarm goes off when we hit that runway and we hurtle up, you know, in a cloud of dust and he sh turns sharp and stops the plane, you know. So that, that was uh, my entry into the uh, Saga Marta Park, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and I, I, I felt okay to fly into Lukla because, uh, you know, I'd been trekking in, in Darjeeling area, okay. So I wasn't subject to AMS. So, but if you fly into Lukla and you're not acclimatized, you can get severe AMS. In fact, one, one young man from Italy had done just that. He was, uh, you know, a son of a, a, a rich family and wanted to find himself. You know, he had some domestic problems or whatever, uh, as, the, as I heard the story. He flew into Lukla and straight away he started trekking. He went up to uh, uh, Namchi Bazaar. And uh, he continued onward, and his body just couldn't take it. He expired. And really? his, his body was covered up with a tarp, and his boots were sticking out, you know, at the end. And it was frozen solid. This and was a guy on your plane? or No, no, no. This was, this was a different uh, person. Uh, no one that I knew, but, you know, I heard the story. And uh, just, it was just before I'd gotten there, actually. And it took the Italian government, I think, two weeks to go in there and retrieve the body. Because it's very remote. Right. Uh, so you do not, you, you, you know, uh, Isaac Newton, I think it was, uh, said, uh, uh, let's see, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Yeah. Right? So you have to respect the laws of physics. You have to know science and respect science. And this Italian guy just didn't do that. And he... You know, he paid for it with his life, you know. So, um, and that lesson is acclimatize yourself. Acclimatize. acclimatize. The, the, the body naturally acclimatizes in 24 hours. If you don't feel good, you just go back to where you felt okay, uh, you know, the day before, and your body naturally acclimatizes. Even That's for the, going down, but for going up, you need to spend more than 24 hours. Well, to get it just it. depends on the elevation gain, okay, yeah. that you do. Even the local Sherpas who live high, you know, in the, in the Himalayas, if they go down to Kathmandu and spend more than two or three weeks there, they also have to acclimatize, you know, yeah. going back up. Even though their physiology and their blood, you know, it's evolved to be more efficient oxygen carriers than we, the average person, you know. I wonder if anybody's done a study on, on how long it actually takes to acclimatize to like how fast you can do it. Because, well, you know, like you're, you're a diver. Right. Actually, for those people that don't know, your website is Diver Kevin. But you know how we have pretty, pretty strict dive tables. Like this is how you do decompression. Right, right. You know, and, there, and there's a lot of science behind like right. if you follow this table, statistically, you're probably not going to get bent. You know, right. You're gonna be fine. But I wonder if anybody's done that study for like well, I'm altitude. sure. Yes, I'm sure there have been studies. And one important uh, source of data is in Periche, uh, on the way to Mount Everest Base Camp, and uh, there, uh, Western doctors uh, volunteer to man the station, and in doing so, you know, they get free room and board, 
uh-huh. uh, they 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 conduct seminars and things, and and anyone who comes out with AMS, they take care of. Um, but uh, on in their free time, they can you know go to Everest Base Camp and the, the, that whole area. So uh, they have a Gamov bag there actually, which is like you know a chamber. Right. So if you get AMS, you can be put in there and pressurized. In fact, uh, the time I was there, there was a Japanese uh, banker, uh, uh, a clerk, who had worked all his life, you know, just diligent, day in and day out working at this bank. And his lifelong dream was to summit a minor peak. In this case, it was, uh, what was the name, I Island Peak? Anyway, so he'd saved money. He uh, went to, to Nepal. He got the permit to climb this uh, minor peak. And his, uh, his guide rapped on the door in the morning and said, you know, it's time to go. We got to, you know, let's go. And no answer. So uh, the, the guy thought, well, he's really tired. Maybe I'll let him sleep, you know, 20 more minutes. So 20 minutes later, bang, bang, no answer. And they, so he got worried. They broke down the door. The guy was comatose. And they oh. did use the Gamal bag to, to uh, pressurize. And that and bag basically is just filled with oxygen? Uh, like is it just an oxygen? I pack? don't know the oxygen content. If they add, you know, more oxygen, but it's it's a, a chamber that you can pressurize. I guess it's not that hard because if you think about, yeah. you know, sea level pressure is fourteen point seven psi, so it's not that hard to make a bag that can get you back down right. to sea level. Right. You know, that's right. not a whole lot of pressure. So the guy did survive, but he had to give up his dream. You know, ah, it sucks. So so yeah, you you have to be very careful. So I, I went by Periche, went up uh, Lobuche. And, and past Lobuche, few trekkers know that there's a side trail to the left, uh, not far after Lobuche, and there's a huge glacier that's coming down, and it, near the base of it is a solar panel pyramid, and it just looks so out of place in this little valley. What's the solar panel for? So it's the Italian government is conducting uh, scientific experiments there. Okay. And the, the solar panels, uh, uh, you know, provide the energy for all their instruments. So mm -hmm. that's a nice little uh, side trek. And everywhere you see, uh, you know, these uh, disks of uh, yak dung. Yeah. And it's used as fuel, and it burns uh, without smoke. And it's very hot, you know. And you see them, you know, we call them buffalo chips, right? Right. But people are all the time gathering this up. And, you know, at first I didn't know, well, why do you want to collect uh, cow dung, you know? But it's like firewood for them, you know. What are they? What are the yaks eating up there? Just grass, like scrub yeah. There's brush? grasses, yeah. So they're basically converting the grasses yeah. to like a, a hard pellet because you know you, you go camping or whatever you're gonna I'm gonna yeah. burn a log, yeah. you know, and go find. Well, it's a, not a hard pellet. It's actually kind of watery, semi viscous, you know. And when it drops down, it, it forms a patty, like that big. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you know. Uh, the cows that we see in the pastures locally, you yeah. know, they, they do. But well, then when that dries out, you can burn it. Yeah, it, it's, you can, you can uh, pick it up like a Frisbee, yeah, that's you know, and, and it retains its shape. That's know? a pretty efficient system. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. You can't go burn the grass, right? Right. Like you couldn't just go pick a bunch of grass, but you got these yak that are basically, from an energy standpoint, so the yak go eat the grass, they extract it the energy that they can for it, yeah, yeah. and they crap out the cellulose, yeah, basically, yeah. that's un undigestible fiber, and, the yaks and then provide, you can go burn that. Yeah, yaks provide uh, milk, sometimes meat. Uh, they're a beast of burden, uh -huh. you know, uh, the magnificent animal. So from there, I, I uh, went up to uh, Gorakshep, 
which is the last little, uh, it's not even a village, it's a little, it's a place with a little hut. Mm -hmm. What well, was when I was there was there were only two huts. Right. And then from there, it's a day excursion to the Everest base camp. So near, near Godakshep, there's a, a little uh, hill or mini mountain, uh, Kalapatar, which is, you know, higher than uh, Everest base camp, about 18,000 something feet. And, uh, you know, by that, I was, uh, uh, I went up that, you know, and I felt a touch of AMS coming on. Um, but uh, I went down to the hut and uh, had sort of a sleepless night because the proprietor, I was the only one in the place, the proprietor had something wrong. It was a couple. Um, the, the wife had something wrong with her arm. It was hurting or something. So they, they had hired a, a shaman to come and do his thing. And he was so noisy all night beating drums and, and they had a huge fire and he'd throw stuff in there and it fire would shoot up, you know, and all this is supposed to cure her arm. Well, I couldn't really sleep well, you know. But anyway, the next day I set off for the, the base camp. Yeah. And uh, if you really want to experience a, a, uh, an adventure, going up to Everest Base Camp, and I was solo, you know, uh, it, it was just a surreal place. And, you know, I, there, there's a, the Kumbu Glacier that you walk on. And you can hear water gurgling under the ice that you're walking on. You hear the creaking of the ice. Occasionally, I'd, I'd see avalanches come tearing down uh, the side of the mountain. Yeah. There's Nupse, you know, and then uh, Everest there. And uh, going up is, was relatively easy. There's no trail, you know, but uh, uh, one expedition, Robert Hall, uh, he had already gone up. The expedition had gone up. And they they've built these... Uh, what do you call them, Cairns? You know, it's putting a big rock, smaller, uh -huh. smaller, and you can see on the, trail. on the horizon, the yeah, these cairns that, that mark the trail. So very easy to go up. So I tooled up, and, you know, I'm still not feeling all that well. And they, they, uh, I met uh, uh, Jan, uh, Robert Hall's wife. She was the medical doctor for the expedition. Uh -huh. Okay, they gave me, uh, they gave me uh, some uh, chai, some tea, you know, wicked stuff i mean it's it's sweet um it's got milk in it you know and you get used to it after a while and then i started down and then you know as i'm going down i see these heavy bank of clouds roiling up from the valley i go oh no i better get off you know get back otherwise you know i might be in a whiteout and uh you know again there's no trail and this time i couldn't see the cairns in the silhouetted on the horizon everything is just rock right you know so i just had to pick and choose and and i went up this little hill at one point and at the the top you know i gasped and you know because i was surprised that a foot past where i was if i had gone down it was a big dish of ice and at the bottom there was a pool of water. Had I, you know, dropped in there, you know, I would have been toast because I couldn't have gotten out of there. Huh. I didn't have crampons, yeah. you know, anything to, you know, it was just a slick like a bowl, you know. And, and several times I, I, I uh, encountered that same thing. And as I'm walking along, occasionally my uh, foot would go through the ice. And it somehow was always my left foot knee deep into to the water, you know. Yeah. And all this time, the, the, the clouds are coming up. And uh, 
And I started to get a little bit concerned, but I knew, you know, you can't, like in diving, you know, you don't want to panic. That's the worst thing. Yeah. You know, just use your God-given intelligence and common sense. And I, I knew the general direction I was going, and I knew the trail would be off to the right. So I just kept working over there. And as it started snowing heavily, I found that trail. And I, and I got back to, you know, my sleeping bag. So that, that was an interesting day. Yeah. And so uh, since I'd come down with this AMS, I really didn't enjoy the, my time at Everest Base Camp. So I decided, well, let me go down and around to this place called Gokyuri. And uh, there, I think that's the, the best view of Mount Everest is from Gokyuri Peak. And back then, there was uh, just one hut. And they had a, a, a greenhouse kind of building just glassed in. And you could strip down and sweat there. I mean, the, the sun was so fierce. Really? Outside, it may have been, uh, you know, uh, 32 degrees, but it was, you know, very pleasant. Uh, there were mallard, or I call them mallard ducks, but very colorful ducks on this uh, Gokyuri Lake. And, uh -huh. and that's, this is an important place for Bill Burke. You remember Bill Burke? Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a member of ours, and he was the, the first... Westerner, or no, the oldest Westerner to summit Mount Everest at age 67. Uh -huh. And later he broke his own record. At age 72, he came from uh, the Tibetan side yeah. and, and, and made it to the top of Everest. You know, he, he lives in Costa Mesa. Very, yeah, I think we, didn't we have him in for a talk last year? 2019? Uh, uh, no, not last year. But he, he has talked here. Yeah. But a very, very fine individual. He, he also went, to, he, last year he paddled down the entire length of the Mississippi. Oh, from that's the head cool. of a, I mean, thousands of miles. And at times he said it was more dangerous being on the river, uh, Mississippi, than on oh, yeah. Mount Everest. Because there's hidden levees and oh, the, yeah. it's very wide. It, the, it can be like an ocean with the waves crashing, lightning, you know, it's, you could get fried, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, a person I really uh, respect. We should get a lot. Bill in here. Yeah, we, we need Mesa, to. That's close, Bill. <laughs> if you're watching, we need to. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, uh, so I, I went to Gokyori, and I, I uh, you know, uh, another mission of mine was to put up these prayer flags. I don't know if you've seen these very colorful. Uh, the Himalayan. Do we have any around here? Uh, we we might have. We, we got a lot of sailing burgies. But Hima Hima and uh, Prim Moktan. The, mm -hmm. the two, the couple that lost their sons, asked me to take these prayer flags and string them up somewhere, you know, uh, near Mount Everest, in remembrance mm -hmm. of, of their sons. And these prayer flags are very colorful: red, white, blue, green, and they waft in the wind, and 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 by doing so, send out positive prayers around the world. So I was glad to do that. The unfortunately, the day I went up there, well, it's not unfortunate, but uh, the terrific winds. I mean. Wind so hard that fist-sized rocks were blowing off the mountain, huh. and I had to dodge them. You know, I, I wore you know a couple of uh, caps uh, in case one fell on me. But yeah, yeah it, it, the conditions there can turn on a dime. Yeah, you know, but that was me very meaningful uh, to do that. So then I got acclimatized, and I went back around to Everest Base Camp the second time, and really enjoyed myself. Okay. Uh, if you want, if you uh, haven't read the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, it tells of the story of Robert Hall. And uh, uh, had I had the chance to climb Everest, I would have taken it, but I couldn't for financial reasons because back then the cost of uh, 
a permit, just a permit to attempt to climb. Right. I, I, someone told me it was 70,000 US dollars. Jeez. In, in any event, very expensive. So a guy like Robert Hall, who's a New Zealander, uh, had this uh, adventure company, and he would get the permit every year from the government. And uh, you know, the, so he, he had ends in the government, they knew him. And so he would take that one permit and it allows you, let's say 10 people. So he would, he would qualify people and say, if you wanna climb Mount Everest, you know, I'll take you there. And, and you can have a space for, let's say, $20,000, whatever the rate was. Right. And that's how he made a living. So, so the year that I was there, I didn't meet him, but I said I met his wife, right? Right. Jan. And so uh, I think it was two or three years later that he had uh, gone up the mountain, uh, met with very harsh conditions, and died mm -hmm. on the mountain. One of his final acts was talking by satellite phone with Jan, who was pregnant in New Zealand, yeah. and naming their baby girl. She was, you know, pregnant and expecting soon. Yeah. And his body, uh, as far as I know, was still there. Yeah. They, they didn't remove it. I think the, his wife wants it that way. So uh, I highly recommend Mount Everest treks. You can do difficult, you can do easy ones, but it's, it's the people are so kind, generous. Uh, you meet very interesting people on the trail too. Yeah, I'd so, say. Yeah, yeah. So where'd you go from base camp? Uh, it so, seems like a high point, but I mean, I know. Yeah, I, know. Um, I think, let's see, I went back into India. Yeah. And then uh, I took, uh, I went uh, clear down to the southern tip and uh, I was interested in... Was that uh, Goa or...? No, this was in Madras. Or Yeah, Goa's a little bit further uh, up, right? Yeah, so I, Madras, uh, Goa came later, so... Uh, the, uh, in so all the way south, the, the, the top of the continent, all yeah, the way down yeah, to the south. Yeah, all the way to the tip. And uh, yeah, I was interested in a fellow named Krishnamurti. Okay. He's sort of a philosopher. How did you find out about him? Well, just in the course of uh, tramping around India, you, you know, you talk to people and, and, and they introduced me to Krishnamurti. Okay. And there's a, uh, an organization called the, the Theosophical Society, which, uh, you know, he, he, he was the leader of that at one point. Theosophical. And it, yeah, Theo so like, meaning God, right? Theosophical uh, uh, society. Like philosophical but with Theo. Theo, so yeah, God. yeah, yeah. And the world headquarters is in Madras. Okay. So I could, you know, uh, capture two birds with and one what's their what's their what's their thing? Well, I mean, if you're really interested, you know, I encourage you to look into it. As with most religions, I think, or you know, metaphysical musings, uh, there are some points that are that make sense that are good, and yeah. then it, it kind of fades off into... Would you call uh, it met metaphysical musings? So, <laughs> yes. that's basically in inventing a religion, right? Is a right, metaphysical right. musing. Well, here. the Theosophical Society was actually uh, founded by a, a colonel, Civil War, U.S. Civil War colonel, Led, yeah. Leadbeater, I think was his name. And they, they thought, well, you know, there's going to be a Messiah, you mm -hmm. know, our, our spiritual leader's coming. And they were walking by... Uh, uh, on the shores of uh, Madras there, Indian Ocean, and there's this little kid, and they thought, this is the guy, and that was Krishnamurti. Okay. So they raised him up and cultivated him and became the leader. But then, you know, he decided, no, you know, you know what, I'm not, I'm not a messiah. In okay. fact, every human <laughs> Good being... Good for him. You know, yeah. Uh, 
Every human being needs to search for truth. And he says there's many paths to the truth, you know. But we, we all need to take our own path to, to inquire and find out about it. So he broke away. But he, he was a prolific writer. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, of many metaphysical, spiritual things. And uh, quite interesting person. And then, uh, uh, actually, there's a Krishnamurti Center right here in California in Ojai. Oh, yeah? And so uh, it's an interesting place to visit. Um, so, so all the way down to the southern tip. Yeah, so that's why I went there. Now. And, you know, I, I talked to the theosophical people. I got to be friends with the editor and whatnot. So what are the theosophical people up to now that Christian has... Krishnamurti. Yeah. Krishnamurti has... has uh, well, they're still an ongoing... Hey, uh, yeah. I'm not the Messiah. Because, you know, I mean, that's a pretty clear signal if your Messiah tells you, hey, <laughs> I'm not the Messiah. Yeah, right. But, you so know, every, one, every or? organization, you know, like individuals want to survive. Yeah. And, and they're, they're still an ongoing organization. They publish a theosophical uh, a magazine, I think, monthly. Hmm. Um, I was friends with the editor for a long time back then. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. So if you have uh, interest or curiosity in, in those kind of things, you know, look it up. Uh, then uh, from there I went over to the other side, uh, Cochin, you know, the, 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 the western side of India, and worked my way up. And I did land in uh, Panaji, the old Goa. And I met, uh, let's see, well, I, in reading the guidebook, you know, I, there's a, a, a Catholic saint there. You know, huh. and uh, I mean, dead, you know, but his corpse has been preserved, you know, St. Francis Xavier. And he was one of the founding uh, fathers of the Jesuits. Okay. Okay. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And it's a basilica status, okay, church. Uh, Bom Jesus, Bom Jesus, I think is the name of it. So, <clears throat> so I, I searched it out, and, and indeed, you know, I saw the sarcophagus and and uh, the church, and was reading about it, and I was astonished to find out that a, a proselyte, uh, a noble woman from Portugal, you know, a Catholic, had come over, and you know, the the body was exposed at that time, and people came and uh, did the obeisance there, and you know, she bent over, uh, you know, in a prayerful stance, and she bit off uh, his little toe. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They carried it off back to uh, Portugal because oh, her man. family had her, their own shrine, and they wanted this. I guess they call them relics, you know. She bit off his toe. Yeah, to take yeah. as a relic. Yeah, I think the the toe has Oof. been reunited with the corpse. But even the Catholic Church, uh, you know, this is a a saint, right? I feel like that's a big no no in the Catholic <laughs> Church. Well, the Catholic Church itself had uh, had uh, amputated the lower uh, right arm because you okay. know it was used to bless people. And I think that's a relic, maybe in the Vatican, which uh, is weird. Yeah, yeah. But I, it's not as weird as as biting it off and carrying. Well, it off, yeah, you know, that's you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. So they sealed the the corpse off in you know in a glass thing, and uh, now so you know that can't happen. But uh, but that that was very okay. interesting. And uh, old Panaji, I mean, it's it's almost a hippie town up there. You know, everyone naked, including girls, you know, playing yeah. frisbee on the beach and whatnot. Normally, those you hear about those naked places, and it's just a bunch of dudes that are naked. <laughs> oh, but everyone was, you know. Yeah. And uh, this was, a you know, the, the a Portuguese colony, Goa, uh, way back when, you know. So it had a lot of Portuguese influence. So do they still speak Portuguese there, or...? 
Um, I doubt it. You know, there was the Inquisition there, which is pretty rough on the local Hindus, because you know, in Hinduism, there's uh, you know multitudes of gods, and you, yeah. you see, I, I've met Christian Hindu people, and they believe both. You know, the beliefs you know kind of overlap, but the Inquisition was a terrible thing back then. You know. So from that there, sucks. I can continue. There's like this, this tiny little place, and you're like, oh, why do you guys got to bring that yeah, over yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I continued up, and uh, I tell you, the uh, amazing place that I visited, you know, in all of India was this place called Ajanta, and it's the Ajanta Caves. And uh, this place was uh, built, you know, probably two centuries, you know, before Christ. Uh -huh. Very old place. Think of a, a river that's for hundreds, thousands of years, you know, swept by this uh, huge cliff and has carved out this crescent, you know, half mile long, okay? Oh. And uh, it was very active with, uh, uh, with uh, Hindu and Buddhist, uh, you know, monks and whatnot for centuries, okay? And then, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it came into disrepair and the jungle took it over. Well, in the early 1800s, a guy with the uh, unusual name of John Smith, he was a colonel in the British you know, army sure. or something, he's hunting tiger in this area. And a tiger leaps into these bushes, and uh, he's you know, going after it. So he, he's in this dark place, and so he, he flicks a match to, to kind of see what the heck, you know, where am I? And he's, much to his surprise, he sees this cave but it's not a natural cave. It's been carved out of this cliff. Huh. And there's, it's an actual building. Now, imagine people with a chisel and hammer. Yeah. You, see, you have this huge rock cliff and you just chisel a building out of it. So there's pillars, there's bas relief art, and it goes in you know, hundreds of yards and it can be two or three stories tall yeah. and heavily influenced by uh, Buddhist uh, 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 culture, okay? It's just, it's just a very amazing Side place. note, I don't know if you've seen this YouTube channel, but there's a YouTube, like, people make a lot of money on YouTube, right? Yeah. There's these two guys like, somewhere in India, I believe, that basically carve buildings out of the, the mud in the jungle. Uh, uh, uh. And, I mean, it's a manual process, but they document it with a GoPro or some, okay. some camera. They've got millions of views. Uh, uh, uh. It's... It's unreal, and they, 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 they do all these intricate carvings. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a video. You can watch them build, build like, a little palace yeah, underground. Yeah, and yeah. Then, and yeah, they're doing yeah. it all with, like you said, chisels and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then, I, I, I mean, I don't think they live in it. You know, they've got to they've be making some good money based on the number of views that they have. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, Andy, Andy, you got those up, don't you? Just to, just to show, show sort of what these guys do. Yeah, these, are these guys. These two guys... I mean, this is always fascinating. Here they are. Um, you know, they got a GoPro, and they, they don't have a lot else. And wow. This, <laughs> and, and just fast forward to the end of this to show, like, So how what, long does it take these guys, huh? I don't know. But I t tell you, it doesn't cost them that much. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's... And how many, how many views does that video have? Yeah, that's... Look it's, at that compound that they built. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, you, you take that <laughs> and you multiply by a million. Yeah. 12, 12 million views. Wow, 12 wow. million or billion? Million. 
12 million. 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 12 million views. Wow, wow. Talk about converting sweat equity into like real money. <laughs> but so I believe it. Yeah, no, this, this is just, it's a world heritage uh, venue, yeah. I believe. I mean, it, it's very amazing. That's another place that you should mark on the Indian map to, to go visit. There's other places like Elora. And what, uh, what was access like when you were there? Were you allowed to go walk around? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think they've uh, tightened up on that since 2012, I read somewhere. Uh -huh. But when I was in the early 90s, you could just uh, roam around, spend as much time as you wanted, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it was funny. There's, there's even, uh, uh, there were ladies who had these huge cardboard, uh, uh, you know, uh, or pieces of wood, and they'd covered it with aluminum foil. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing was, if you're inside this, one of the structures, they would uh, angle the, the uh, aluminum foil, which would shine into the cave, light you up. And huh. you, therefore, you could take a picture. You know, that oh, kind of cool. thing. Yeah, you know, they're kind of. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's a fascinating place. So from there, you know, I went to uh, a place. Uh, let's see, what's the name of it? Uh, you know, my hard drive is full, so I forget. Some yeah, of the I'd name. say your hard drive. So, <laughs> so, so, you, you, so you went down. So no, I, I, I went to, to this uh, place uh, uh, for a meditation course. You know, it's called uh, Vipassana, and uh, you know, we, we're talking about adventure. Uh -huh. And roaming the planet, and you know how that accelerates awareness, you know, of peoples, the earth, and and life, you know. But I think one of the the greatest adventures, maybe the t most difficult, is the inner adventure, the journey mm -hmm. inside. So uh, Igatpuri is the name of the village where I went to this the Vipassana headquarters. It has nothing to do with religion. It was uh, something started by uh, the Buddha. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, just a meditation technique. And it consists of, uh, of uh, 10 days of meditation. You wake up at 4 o'clock, very simple meal, banana and some milk, and you're just sitting for the rest of the day. And, you know, most people cannot sit five minutes, yeah. you know, in comfort. And it, but you're sitting there eight hours a day and contemplating your navel, so to speak, and your mind does some weird things. You know, why am I here? What's it all about? You know, do what, what you know, do what, what I believe, is it correct? You know, all these things, you know, and uh, it's very intense. You know, some people drop out, it's so intense, you know. But uh, uh, I found that it was uh, uh, very beneficial for me because, you know, as a youngster, I had been afflicted with uh, pretty good bouts of depression, mm -hmm. melancholia. And, uh, and so it helped me get in tune with that. This whole trek, it was not simply for the pleasure of being out on the road, but I was also in a sort of a quest. Right. You know, seeing how other people live. And then, you know, I, have, I had good health. I still have good health, you know, live in, the, in uh, one of the best countries of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, have an education, you know, and I see that people, you know, on this trek, you know, who, who have much less, materially speaking, but, you know, they may be barefoot, uh, hardly uh, anything to eat, but they're happy, you know, which is a relative thing, right? Yeah. Um, so so it, I think the inner journey is very beneficial. So uh, it was very uh, meaningful for me to spend time at Igapuri and, uh, and uh, do this meditation course. They have centers around the world now, and, and the, there's and one the basic, here in California. The prescription, so to speak, is 10 days of waking up, small meal, shut up and think, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, but do it for 10 days. It, so, it just, so, you, so you push everything else out of your life. Yeah. Yeah. You're not doing anything else. Yeah. You're just thinking yeah. about and, whatever And you at this point, I, nobody knew where I was. Nobody in the world, you know. I had no ties in the U.S. Uh-huh. I had cut ties with Korea. And, and truly, it was uh, freedom and liberty, you know. Yeah. And some people are not comfortable with that. But uh, in order to discover yourself, I think you have to go to some extremes. I'm not saying put yourself in danger. Um, you know, and some people may think what I do is, quote, dangerous. But, uh, you know, once you do something and you get accustomed to it, that gives you more confidence to the next level. Yeah. And, and that's what I was doing on this trip. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I kept going up. Uh, I went to Gujarat and uh, back to Delhi. Uh, Rajasthan. I mean, there's wealth of stories there. But I, I finally left India and, and hit uh, Kenya. And I don't know what we're, how we're doing on time. If you let me know. If, you want to come back for the Kenya talk? <laughs> so, you, so how many years are you in right now? Uh, uh, I feel like you're about, about a year two, two, two years. years. Yeah, yeah. So two. So so you spent all this. The the, the first seg, major segment is you were. You were in Nepal, Nepal and in India, India. That's right. and you started out in uh, Thailand. That's right, yeah. And, and then the last little bit was in Africa. Uh, yeah. yeah I, Do you I, want to talk about Africa? Well, just I'm briefly interested. since, you know. I'm interested. I, yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah, because I had trekked so much at high altitudes um, in, in Kenya, you know, I went there to climb Kilimanjaro and uh, Mount Kenya. Those are the two highest mountains on that continent. Uh-huh. So I thought, well, in Kenya... Mount Kenya is the, the tallest mountain, so let me start with that. So, uh, you know, I did that trek, and I found it much, much more interesting, uh, pleasurable, uh, and meaningful than Kilimanjaro. People go up Kilimanjaro, which is in Tanzania. The locals told me their country name is uh, Tanzania, not Tanzania, okay? But anyway... Uh, it, it, uh, Kilimanjaro's in Tanzania, and, it, and people flock there to climb the mountain be- simply because it is the tallest. Yeah. Okay, the 19,000 whatever feet, almost 20,000 feet. But uh, to me, it was relatively easy compared to Mount Kenya, which is a little lower. Why? Because uh, uh, it's less traveled. You see all kinds of flora and fauna. For example, I saw this animal look like sort of like a tailless beaver. Yeah. And it's called uh, Rock Hyrax. And the locals told me that's the closest living animal relative to the elephant. Really? What's it, that look like? A tailless hey, beaver. Is you this, can... a, this a pic- First of all, let's take a look at this picture. I think this is somewhere. Is this Mount Kenya that you got? Yeah, there, yeah, that's a good picture of Mount Kenya. So you can't do that solo. Because, because the government imposed, you know, you have to have. A I don't guide. know if you can do Kilimanjaro. No, you can't anymore. Kilimanjaro either. You know, yeah. you have to have a guide, and, and I think it's worth it because the the effort to 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 get the supplies and find the route and all this, you know, it's yeah. just easier to to pay a guide, you know. And so, and yeah, this is coming from a guy who's definitely a solo trekker. Oh yeah, you you you, you got rid of your Sherpa pretty <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. short order. Yeah yeah. But it, it, unlike Nepal, there are not villages on the way up. Yeah, you you do you've got to carry in everything, food and yeah. Fuel so I mean, yeah, th- yeah, those logistics are more. Yeah, so it's yeah. Uh, unusual animals. These plants called the giant lobelias, uh, you know, you, you get high in altitude. It's near the equator, you know, mm-hmm. but still the altitude makes it cold. So uh, at night it gets freezing. So uh, uh, these plants, 
uh, have evolved to excrete a chemical that preserves the water and prevents it from uh, freezing. So oh, they have a ready supply of water interspersed with their in the leaves. Okay, so that kind of thing. And then the, that's crazy. The, and then the hike up to the summit. Uh, was it? I forgot the name of the peak. We had we had someone here. Who so would, this. This isn't. This is a closest species to an elephant. Yes, if that's the, that rock the hyrax. Good job there, Andy. Wow. Yeah, hey. yeah. That's a cute little guy. I guess they've you studied the genetics the and all that, and you know taxonomy. But yeah, they're related somehow. Huh. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a very steep, uh, steep hike at the end, and uh, but worth worthwhile. Mount Kenya, better than Mount Kilimanjaro. Kenya. And you can see the the summit of Mount Kenya. I mean Mount uh, Kilimanjaro from Kenya, and vice versa. That's cool. Above the clouds. You know? huh. So from there, it's always crazy when you see another peak above yeah, the clouds, yeah, and that's yeah. all that you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel like you're on top of the world. Yeah. yeah. So then from there, you know, I, I did go to to uh, Tanzania and uh, and climbed up Kilimanjaro. And, and these were just like side hikes for you because you. Well, yeah. It ended up I met two uh, uh, medical doctor chaps from Montreal. Uh -huh. We trekked together, and uh, they got AMS. So I ended up carrying both their backpacks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. And talk about scree, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, we went up, and there's a glacier, and uh -huh. folks told me, you know, in five years, that's probably be gone. Well, I, w I dived in uh, Kenya just a couple of years ago, and I overflew uh, Kilimanjaro, and that, that ice is still there, so huh. it, it hasn't uh, melted off yet. But yeah, it, it's uh, you 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 uh, summit there, and maybe uh, and Andy can get the picture up where I, I summited. You got the summit. Picture and it, it was just one little simple sign. Then I think they've done it up. There know, it is. Uh, uh, more now, yeah. What is it, right? You've you've reached the um, what does it say? Uhuru Peak. Yeah, Uhuru Uhuru Peak, the highest point in Africa, five thousand eight hundred ninety-five meters. So Kilimanjaro Uhuru Peak is the top of yeah, Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Okay. Uhuru Peak. Uhuru. It sounds like the the gal on Star Trek. No. Uhura? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so uh, that was my time in, uh, in in Africa. I did go on a, a, a couple of safaris there to see the wildlife. Uh -huh. uh, very interesting. I have to return to do that, you know, a little. So better. I do want to know how how did you reintegrate back into society? You were gone for three years. Yeah, it is it's tough. You know, from there I went to Europe and did some trucking there. I went to Switzerland wanted to go to uh, Grindelwald, where you have Jungfrau and the major peaks there. Uh -huh. I did not know in Europe, and especially in uh, Switzerland, when a train comes up to a station, it decouples. So the first section goes a different, to a different town, different destination. The, 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 other, you know, the rear part you know, heads off in another direction. Well, you know, I told the, the conductor who spoke maybe two words of English, hello, goodbye, you know. That, you know, I showed him the map. I said, Grindelwald, you know, I want to go to Grindelwald. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And so we, we go up, I think it was, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, some major city. And again, unbeknownst to me, uh, you know, the, the, the trains are going different directions. So I get off, I get off the, the train I'm on with this conductor and get on to the other one. And I turn around to say, you know, thank you, goodbye. And he looks at, he's looking at me saying, no, 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 you know. 
And by this time, that's the weird. You're waving with two hands. <laughs> yeah. So I, I immediately knew. Oh shoot, I'm on the wrong train. You know. So my my train is already starting to leave. Mm-hmm. And I, without thinking, I, I I snatched my backpack and I jumped off. You know, rolled on the platform, and I got on the the back uh, end of this train. <laughs> And I turned around, and now he's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, bye-bye, you know. Yeah. So I get to Grindelwald, and I start hiking up. And all the while, man, my, my elbow is hurting, you know. I reached the snow line, and I, it was hurting so badly at that point, I took a handkerchief and made a tourniquet, you know, and immobilized my arm yeah. with my uh, handkerchief and belt and pa- packed snow on my elbow, you know. Well, I finished my hike, and I made it back uh, to Basel. And uh, my friend picked me up. Uh, a friend actually I'd met in uh, in India, you know, uh-huh. Peter Schultz, he's a medical doctor. He's practicing there in Basel. He, he's of Czech origin. So anyway, he said, oh, we better get you to the, the clinic, you know. So Basel University, he dropped me off, you know, before I worked. They x-rayed my uh, elbow and they said, guess what, young man? You broke your elbow in two places. So, oh, shoot, you know. And fortunately, I didn't have to have a cast. You know? yeah. They just uh, made a harness. And so that kiboshed my plans for going up to Sweden. Well, I went there, but I couldn't do the Kingsway trek because you have to cross one lake, and there's three boats, two on one side and one boat on the other. And if you're solo, you have to go across and bring the other boat back. So there's always a boat for someone to you know, continue this trek. Yeah. So... With a broken uh, arm, you know, Couldn't I would just go in circles, you know. So I had to give that up. But I, I toured around uh, Scandinavia and uh, went to London. You know, I'm a Beatles fan, so I had to see Abbey Road. Yeah. I'm a Shakespeare fan, so I went up to the Cotswolds and saw his birthplace. Took a rubbing of his, you know, uh, gravestone, things uh-huh. like that. Yeah, and so I, I eventually got back to the U.S. But as you mentioned, yeah, uh, after all those uh, worldwide peregrinations, you know, it was not easy to integrate back. Because, you, you know, when you meet people, and that's why I love the club here, because you meet people who have done this kind of stuff. And, right. you, and, and there's a commonality when you talk about uh, uh, Darjeeling, Kilimanjaro, whatever. You know, there's invariably people who have been there and done that, and you, you have something in common to talk about. Yeah. Whereas the average person, you know, uh, and I spent a lot of time in the Midwest. Uh, my father was actually in the U.S. Air Force, and he uh, uh, retired as a chief master sergeant in uh-huh. the highest non-commission. I'm very proud of him. But uh, his, his last station was in uh, Scott Air Force Base in Belleville, Illinois. So, you know, I spent some time there. And, you know, I'm, people are very nice, uh, you know, the salt of the earth, very kind, but, you know, it's difficult to relate to people who've not really been outside their their state, sometimes not even outside their, their village. I would love to see the statistics on how many people never leave their home country, never leave their home state, never leave their home county. Yeah, yeah. I bet it would be because, you know, th- this group that we're in, the Adventurers Club. Right, right. Um, there isn't anybody in this club that hasn't hasn't <laughs> been somewhere yeah. abroad. You know, not to say that you couldn't, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. you could be an adventurer and never leave California. Yeah, yeah. Well, but look, I don't think there's anybody in the club that has not left the United States at some point. Yeah, yeah. Look at a person like uh, Bob Gannon, yeah. know, Venture of the Year here. Uh, he's flown to more countries. He's flown his plane solo to more countries than well than I've been to. Well, you the, know who we've got coming up 
in a couple of weeks. Yeah, who's that? It's Bill Altifer. Oh yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, he <laughs> he's ranks up there top five in countries visited. Yeah, yeah, I think he's number one, but we're going to talk about whether he's number one or number yeah. five. Or well, number there's there's a lot of different. Uh, there's lots of ways standards, to, yeah, right? There's but, lots of standards, but actually countries that you've been to, and that includes territories and all this. Uh, I don't know if he's number one or not. I'll, I'll have to. It'll be an interesting uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, um, look, uh, but we, but but you know, we're used to that. Uh, we think everybody, and you're yeah. right. Like you know, a, a lot of the standard population might not have been outside. So I get right, what you're saying. Right, right, right. So when you came back to the U.S., what did you do? You had to get a job. Yeah, I had yeah. to get a job, and then I'll get back into to that. You know, because you you have to meet the financial needs. You right. Know? You got to eat and put clothes on your back and have a roof over your head. You know, so. Yeah, I, I eventually got into uh, consulting in the food industry, and I represent a lot of companies in the U.S., and I export uh, ingredients, equipment, and know-how hmm. uh, to Asia, mostly Korea. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I put And that, that allows you to be free to adventure yes. and yes. diving, mostly. Yes. Yeah, after, you know, I love trekking and high-altitude uh, uh, hiking, but uh, in recent years, it's been diving a yeah. lot. And uh, just was in uh, in the Galapagos with uh, Mary and Phil, a couple of uh, local folks in Torrance that, uh, you know, it, we dived uh, in the Galapagos, saw my first uh, hammerhead sharks. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a, a wide-angle guy, but I managed to shoot uh, sharks with a macro lens, you know. Mm -hmm. You'll see them on my website, diverkevin.com. Diverkevin.com. <laughs> I'm actually on that website a lot checking out pictures from oh, okay okay so kevin go. what we like to do at the end here is yeah. um w our comment section is normally filling up with with questions i'm sure we've got some questions there that andy, sure andy is ready to fire off so if you'd be willing to ask answer a few questions for some fire of our away let's go viewers what do we got andy we sure do have some questions that i Hang on, I have to take off my headphones because or else I get an echo. But first of all, thank Andy's you been to drinking. <laughs> everyone in the chat. Water or some other beverage? I mean, it looks like water. Um, <laughs> so what is the... F uh, what do you think would have happened if you'd ordered a steak instead of chicken <laughs> from that one restaurant? Oh, boy. That's that, a good question. Yeah, that would have been a big beast to butcher. No, uh... The, the uh, bovines are revered, you right. know, in, yeah. in, in India and Nepal. So you get so, thrown out of that restaurant. Yeah. Although I, I, you know, I guess I have to admit I have had uh, yak jerky, which tastes much like, you know, just beef jerky, you know. Yeah. Hopefully, well, I don't know. Maybe it was just from a, a animal that naturally died. I don't think they would have purposely butchered it, you know, for, yeah. for the meat. Yeah. What's the next question? That made it worse, I think. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. This animal died of <laughs> right. disease or old age. Oh, yeah, right, right. It's the best stuff. All right, next question is, uh, do you have any recommendations for people looking to travel to some of the places that you've been? Do I have recommendations? Uh, like, so uh. so you, you said a couple. You said Himalayas for sure. Yeah, Mount, Mount Everest, uh, the Annapurna Circuit. Any trekking in Nepal, well, well worth the while for anyone who likes hiking. I guess uh, in terms of logistics, I think was the, the oh, thrust oh. of the question. Well, I mean, it's, it's been, uh, you know, years since I've been there. Uh, so I'm sure things have changed and probably gotten easier. Yeah. You know, because you have the internet, uh, you can book things ahead, uh, you know, 
even in remote areas now, you have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. So I think travel has become easier, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the, the access to information. Yeah, yeah. Not less, a yeah. lot less unknowns. Yeah. But I would say don't rely on technology. You know, there, there's a adventure, a spirit that you know it can lead you if you're if you're if you're open and you just put yourself out there and take what comes. Yeah. You know, this, uh, there's a you know serendipitous things that happen. You meet a person, uh, you click with them, they invite you, you know, to their hometown, something like that. You know, just go with the flow. You know, don't try to to plan each and every place that you want to go yeah. to. Yeah. What else we got? What else we got? Uh, what is the most dangerous thing you've ever done to try to get a perfect shot? Ah, uh, in terms of your <laughs> photography. Did yes, you, you didn't talk about a lot of photography on this trip. Right, because back then there was no digital photography. So mm. I did have a little Instamatic and the pictures that you saw, you know, the few were taken with a little Fuji, uh, you know, $20 Instamatic camera. You limited to 36 shots. Yeah. So I was, I was uh, not taking a lot of shots. Had I had the digital camera or my iPhone, you know, iPhone 11 Pro Max, is, the quality is nearly the same as a DSLR, yeah. really. Um, you know, I would have taken thousands of pictures, you know. But, uh, yeah, back then... Uh, What's the you, most dangerous thing you did to get a shot, though? I think that so, was the question. Uh, you know, on, on my worldwide travels, uh, I don't think I put myself in a real dangerous position as far as photography because I wasn't into it as, as I am now. I can tell you that with uh, Rick Flores, you know, last uh, winter, we, we went up to uh, 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 Zion and mm -hmm. Angel's Landing in the winter where there was, it's covered with ice and snow at the top. And it was very dicey there. And, and I, you know, at points I was trembling when I was taking the photos. Yeah. Because, you know, we did, neither one of us had crampons. You need to get yourself a pair of crampons. Uh, well, I've on? got them now. That's but the second in time fact, that I, you're like, yeah, I didn't have crampons. Well, I, I bought them, we bought them when we got back down, you know. Yeah. But we didn't know on the way up that we, we would need them. Yeah. So, uh, but no, I, I don't think I put place myself uh, in any dangerous uh, photo op positions right. back then. What's next, Andy? Next comes from Larry Stern, and he wants you to talk about diving on seven continents, if you please. <laughs> I feel like that's another talk, Larry. Come on. Well, hi, Larry. Uh, we're, yeah, we're like we're like two hours in, and hey, let's do another talk. Oh, well, okay. No, well, but I... you have David Dove Divin. Dove, dived, yeah. dived. Yeah, what yeah. is the proper? I, I usually pastor. say dived. You know, uh, you've dived on seven continents, right, right. or around seven continents. And you know, I, I never really planned to dive. This, you know, that wasn't. I didn't set out as a goal to do that. Yeah. But I realized, you know, I started diving here, went to Asia, and uh, you know, went to Europe, and I, you know, it's South America, and I realized, hey, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not that far from diving seven continents. So Jeff Bozanik, a, a, a good buddy of mine, uh, who's a rebreather expert and instructor, he invited me to, uh, to dive Antarctic once, and so I went with him. Boom, got them all. And, well, no, that was number six. Oh. And so you know, and I saw nudibranchs there in the water that was uh, 29 degrees. Ah, crazy. You know, the freezing point of water is what? Well, not with all that. 32, salt, right? right? So, so at 29 degrees, there's still life, and and it's. Below freezing, but uh, the fresh water freeze temp is 32, but you have like 3.5% 
NaCl, you know, salt in the ocean. So that prevents it from freezing until you get down to 38.3 degrees. So uh, yeah, uh, I dived uh, Antarctica and then I just had one left. That was Australia. So I was That's an easy one. Yeah, very easy. Except that was the last one you did. I, that I was the last seven one. continents. The last one I did was <laughs> Australia. Yeah, yeah. So that was an have easy you, one. Have you done that dive um, in Iceland between the? No, I haven't. Uh, I hope to do that. One of our uh, members. Uh, you guys knocked out too, right there. Li lives there. Yeah, yeah. yeah on Iceland. Um, Christian, 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 yeah, yeah, which apparently is a common name in Iceland, yeah, 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 because I, I saw a GoPro picture this week of a, of a Christian, Christensen there, right. in a plane, and I yeah, posted yeah. it. It's like John Smith or something, you know. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we have any more questions in there? Got a few more questions. Yeah, got a few more questions. Sure. Uh, first one from Al Colos, and he wants to uh, give a shout out to member Tom O'Eighty if he's watching, and his dear friend Ann. So, Tom and Ann, if you're watching, so glad you could join the stream. Next question here is What is one thing you learned that you did not expect to learn? Do you want to repeat the question so that people can hear? Oh, they can hear it. Oh, okay. Uh, one thing that I've learned that I didn't expect to. Wow, that's. Uh, I could. We could be here all night to answer that. Uh, yeah, it was just one thing. Uh, Lots of things. Apparently. Well, okay. And, what and was I, the most impactful thing? Well, you know, I. You I think learned. you all have heard this before, but it's, it's very true that uh, the more you see of the world and peoples, the more you see that they're not different. Uh, they are the same in their humanity. When I first went to India, I was surprised that their banknote, I think back then, had 18 official languages hmm. printed on, you know, English, Urdu, uh, Hindi, uh, you know, Karnatakan, whatever, uh, all these, you know, and uh, uh, externally they, they have, you know, different uh, clothes, um, different foods, you know, and these appear different, and they are superficially, but in the human heart, you know. Uh, you know, we seek to be happy, whatever that means. You know, that's another talk in itself. Yeah. Um, yeah we want to be secure, comfortable, have, a, you know, meaningful friends, you know, all these things. Those are the commonalities of humanity. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that you really get to learn that when you're on the road. Last question. All right. Last question of the night comes from Michael Bershad. And he wants to know, he has asked this before, but uh, did you hear any stories involving the Yeti? <laughs> yeah, uh, you were in Yeti country. <laughs> yes, I, I, in the Himalayas, invariably you hear about the Yeti and uh, uh, you know, stories going here and there. I never met someone who claimed to see uh, uh, the Yeti um, directly. But yeah, yeah, from village to village, uh, you're apt to hear stories about. Yeah. And I think they did find uh, uh, an orangutan-like skull with some wisps of hair on it. Someone may have packed that in or something, you know, a number of years ago, and, and they claimed that that was, uh, you know, the Yeti. You know, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I don't put much credence in those stories. How they come Just from like somewhere. Bigfoot here, you know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kevin, thank you for coming by tonight. We appreciate my pleasure ha having you out and to hear about your stories and Enjoyed your trucking it. stuff. Um, so, for those of you watching, thanks again. 
Um, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Next week, we've got a great diver coming up from San Diego who actually has done a lot of uh, underwater um, uh, videography. Andre Navarro, I, I think you've probably seen him on our group, does beautiful, amazing um, underwater video and some drone video of the beaches. And now it, he's on a um, trek, basically diving all the sites uh, from Monterey South, I think. Oh, so, very good. So that's going to be a great talk. Join us here. Anyway, Rich Mayfield, member 1211 from the Adventurers Club. We will see you next week. Thanks, everyone, for joining in. Enjoyed it. Good night.